Have you ever heard the term neo-reactionaryism? Well, if you have, then you're a nerd, just like us. <laughs> but I bet you have heard the term red pill. You may have even heard the term the cathedral. Now, if you've heard the term the iron polygon, you're, you're back to being a nerd just like us. But the reason why we're going to talk about these things today is because a lot of these ideas are somewhat on the peripheral of a lot of the discussions that are going on right now. And people are using certain terms, sometimes not even understanding where they've originated, originated from, at least in a, in a political or, a, or a, a political philosophy standpoint. And so today we're going to talk about what these terms mean, why we think they're relevant. And here's the part I really want to hammer in on. We're not necessarily agreeing with everything we're going to talk about today. We're not necessarily agreeing with all the solutions that are going to be offered today. But our goal is to properly understand this whole concept of a neo-reactionary. What is it and why is it actually becoming more and more relevant to the problems that we are seeing in our country today? All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, powered by Good Ranchers. Thank you so much for joining us. Just since Tuesday, we've had so many new people joining our community chat, sharing their goals for our 90-day improvement project on their relationships, intellectual goals, and all different kinds of things. And it's been really fantastic to see. If you'd like to join in on that project, you can go down to the link in the description, join our community chat there. We would love to get to know you and have you help drive the direction of this show. All right. As always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates. But other than that, a reasonably good guy. Not with us today is my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. She's actually working on a project right now, so she can't be with us. And I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that she saw the title of neo-reactionaryism and thought to herself, gosh, I can't wait to watch that. However, you know who's really excited about this, along with myself, is our political prognosticator and resident historian and true resident historian now that he has finished his master's program, Christian Hines. Hi, Christian. Hi. Um, not true yet. Yet it still needs to be graded, okay. and then I still need to get the, the the actual diploma. But I'm done with the work. It's I, I'm done with the work on my end. The school needs to do the work on their end. But yeah, um, we're at the end of the process. Well, you've been doing well so far. Hopefully, you didn't bomb it on the last paper. All right, and then we also <laughs> <laughs> we also have Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton. The one who doesn't like central banking. I'm happy for Christian that he's done with his paper. He's been in great mood. He great has. Mood he, Christian has been in a lot, a, in a lot a of stress off of him. Better mood. He he has. He's been a lot less stressed. Not that he was. Not that he wasn't. You know, easy to work with before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for, I our, saw that for, for our audio listeners, that was me making a I'm lying right now face. Right. So this right. is going to be a really neat topic. Yeah. I. I. I okay. So again, just. Just to let everybody know why, you know, because you, you look at something like this, you're like, okay, what's the, what's the big deal? Like, are we really delving into some sort of obscure philosophical concept that has no relevance? And I would argue, no, a, a lot of, um, we, we've done discussions before about things like a national divorce. We've done discussions before about understanding, you know, democratic principles and understand how different countries have applied democratic principles. We've, we've talked about some of the problems that we've seen within society culturally and Again, what's fascinating, some of the terms we've used, whether it's been the cathedral or Christian likes to use the term Leviathan, which is kind of, I would say, a, a broader explanation of what the cathedral is. A lot of this comes from neo-reactionaryism. And what's amazing is that you will get the typical response from people that have never bothered to read what a lot of these guys have to say. And that's like, oh, they're just a bunch of proto-fascists. Oh, they're just a bunch of racists. Oh, they're just a bunch of anti-democratic goons. They are anti-democratic, but I wouldn't call them goons. So again, the, the, the purpose here is let's properly understand what they believe. 
And I think that starts off with just looking at uh, a quote we have here. If you could scroll down a little bit. And this is this is a really interesting website. It's it's a wiki page. Nope, up a little bit more. Up okay. a little bit more. Sorry, right there, that first quote. All right. Um, it, it's called paulcumball.mirahays.org. Yeah, Basically what it is, it's, it's, like a, it's like a wiki page for these political philosophies, political theories. Um, we, we've been going through kind of reading through this. It, in the context of pollen ball, which in, yeah. if anybody knows what that is, it's a meme. Speaking of nerds. <laughs> <laughs> well, well to, to, to briefly explain it, because it, it is in a yeah. meme format. So they, they, they take this, what is a meme format to describe countries. It's called pollen ball in reference to Poland. And, and they're just like cartoons that people draw representing countries. And they're usually in the shape of balls, hence the term. And so they took that and then applied it to political ideologies. And yeah. people made a, a wiki about it. But even though it's meme in the format, yeah. like if it, for our audio listeners, like if you go and look at this website, it's very meme but yeah. it's actually very detailed. Some of the, the, the philosophies that they describe and they describe everything from traditional conservatism and progressivism to really niche things like neo-reactionaryism. The reason that we're showing this is because it's, it's easy to understand. You can yeah. read it and you can get a grasp of what an ideology is in a short amount of time. Well, and just like your typical wiki page, the hyperlinks are very good. And, and so you have an opportunity. The other thing that I was really impressed by this is that this is written by, when I looked at this page, this was written by somebody that, again, wanted you to properly understand what the people who believe in this or subscribe to this actually believe, not what other people from outside are telling you that they actually believe. So here, here's a quote from, from Curtis Yarvin, who's kind of one of the, the main thinkers within what they call the dark enlightenment or neo-reactionaryism. And he, and this is what he says. This is where it gets a little, gets a little spicy right off the bat. He goes, our problem is democracy. Democracy is a dangerous, malignant form of government, which tends to degenerate sometimes slowly and sometimes with shocking gut-riching speed into tyranny and chaos. You've been taught to worship democracy. This is because you are ruled by democracy. If you were ruled by the slime beast of Vega, you would worship the slime beast of Vega. Now, again, this is a little bit funny and a little bit flippant. Um, and, and again, I, I don't, I, I actually think democratic processes are, are, are very important, but the, the point that he's making is not a new one. If you actually, if you actually read everything going back to, to ancient Greek philosophy, um, one of the things that they pointed out on this whole idea of that democracy tends to, or can, um, you know, descend into tyranny and chaos is, is rooted in this idea that you get to a point where people discover very quickly that, well, democracy is just majority rules. And so if you have the votes, you can essentially do whatever you want to the people that don't have the votes. And, and that is a fair critique. And I would argue that one of the things, one of the reasons why we emphasize so carefully in the United States that we are not just a democracy, we are a constitutional republic that operates off of certain democratic principles and processes is because our founders understood this and they, they wanted to actually create safeguards against the excesses of just pure democracy. And so we've done a lot of episodes explaining why, you know, democracy being used synonymous with freedom or, or not understanding uh, both the benefits, but also the potential downfalls of, you know, again, the excesses of democracy is, is a problem. And our, and our problems with politicians just throwing this word out there as if it has just some inherent moral magic, which, oh, as long as it was democratic, it was fine. And then we point out like, oh, you mean like when people democratically voted to enslave other people? Like that wasn't a good thing, right? Okay. So then how do we put in proper safeguards? What, what Curtis Yarvin is essentially saying is that 
he thinks it's it's so baked into the process that there needs to be other thing there needs to be other processes there needs to be other systems that we could we should look at in order to determine if they would function better so let's go ahead and scroll down here a little bit so again i we let off with that quote just to kind of get, you know, generate some interest the the meme poster that you see on the right um also kind of gets to um the, the heart of the title for this episode. Yeah. Nick, do, do you want to talk about like uh, most people don't know this, but before yeah. we jump into it, do we want to reveal to people there's a term mm -hmm. that almost everybody who operates in politics uses and they don't realize it actually comes from the people who operate within this field. And by the way, it's also worth noting that neo-reactionaryism somebody actually brought up in the comments beware of isms and and icks and that's a that's a very good point sure. don't be wedded to to a terminology and think that it's the end-all be-all one of the things that you can use this thought process to um you know w w without necessarily you know buying into it from a dogmatic standpoint is think of th think of some of the the stuff that we're going to be discussing today as a, a thought process through which you can understand the lens of politics not inherently a list of of prescribed solutions yeah you can draw solutions in fact Yarvin himself has come up with a solution that we're gonna that we're gonna dig through today a little bit but you don't have to necessarily buy his solutions in order to understand the entire thought process that some of these neo-reactionary thinkers have come up with in order to better understand our political process so again I, I would actually say that it's not a political ideology it's a mechanism through which you can understand other political ideologies no yeah i think i think that's accurate and and you see here where they say the dark enlightenment or neo-reactionaryism is broadly reactionary all right economically and culturally right uh, to far right and civically varied but prominently what they call post-libertarian and we'll kind of get into a little bit later on what that actually means he goes however some as john uh, uh joshua tate say that um it, gosh, I'm not even going to this. Basically what it is, is reactionary only in regards to politics while maintaining positions usually described as socially progressive, right? So uh, this originates from the writing of a couple of uh, right-wing bloggers from the mid-2000s. So if you look at some of the things that neo-reactionaryism opposes, it opposes democracy, egalitarianism, and the common consensus that the progress of history leads to liberty and enlightenment and the abolition of absolutism in favor of democracy and or constitutional monarchy considering itself the antithesis of enlightenment thought there's a reason why they call it the dark enlightenment is because there, there's been this there's been this kind of revision lately of both the enlightenment and the dark ages because what they're discovering is the dark ages were nowhere near as is dark and dreary and horrible as everyone seems to claim and then at the same time they're realizing that okay not everything in the enlightenment was simply hunky dory and, and wonderful and led to you know incredible progress and and this goes i think back to what christian was saying and what um, one of the commenters was saying as well it's like look be, beware of this idea of like no 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 it's just this ism and that's it and 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 everything else everything else is wrong or sucks um now there's one thing in here that i really appreciated as well is that they will say that this you know theory is is related to race realism which they end up saying is racism, right? Um, or hyper racism and, and neo-fascism. Now, what I, what I appreciate about this is that in this article, they say, <laughs> let me read it off because this is a great way to put it. Uh, it goes, it is often associated with race realism, but despite what mainstream sources make an impression of, this is not included in the theory and may be confused on first glance because of risky wording. 
It also says that it's been described as neo-fascist by journalists and commentators and is seen as a major influence on the modern alt-right movement. However, the theorists typically denounce the alt-right and fascism. This is the same people, these are the same sort of commentators that call Ben Shapiro a fascist and a alt-right commentator. It's, look, if someone from the alt-right or someone that associates themselves agrees with one aspect of what you're saying, that doesn't mean your philosophy is alt-right. If that is true, well, then I get to go look at the left and say, well, I see a lot of communists agreeing with what you say. Therefore, you're proto-communist, right? They don't want to be categorized that way. I don't think, you know, the other side wants to be categorized that way. And again, it, as you as you look at what they're actually talking about and the issues that they're bringing up, I, I think just flat out calling them racist or fascist completely miss what they're trying to say because nothing I can see, nothing I've read so far would have ever led me to that conclusion. They're actually incredibly in favor of property rights. Um, I haven't seen anything they've talked about that is race-based. They're definitely not fascist when you think about the economics. Oh my the, gosh. The biggest driving force behind the the entire, like what they call NRX, neo-reactionary thought process is yeah. the Austrian school of economics, which oh is about gosh. as anti-fascist. It's the most free market. It, it's the most formalized free market school, I would argue, in the world. And and what what you'll notice is the Austrian school, again, it's 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 heavily influenced this entire thought process. Now, there's there's going to be a question from people, which is, why do I need to learn about some obscure thing written by you know some bloggers in the early 2000s? How is this relevant to the political process? And the reason why that it's relevant is because if you've ever heard of the term red pill, yeah, that's why you need to know what this is. Yeah, a lot of people associate it with the Matrix, and that's kind of a pop culture reference. But these are the guys, the one that really ushered it into political parlance. If you've ever used the term red pill in a political context outside of the context of the movie, The Matrix, these are the people that actually coined the term in its political context. Hamilton, could you click on the third link that you've got up there? I just want to show people really quickly. This is the original blog post that actually first used the term red pill in a political context all mm -hmm. the way back in 2007. So over 15 years ago. It was this guy, um, uh, Curtis Yarvin, who wrote under the the pen name Mencius Moldbug at the time with his um, blog, Unqualified Reservations, where he first coined the term in a political context. And since this blog, that term has now broadened into the the popular culture. And now people use the term like based and red pilled on, on like almost an everyday basis. Yeah. And nobody necessarily knows that he's the guy that actually first coined the term in a political process. So it's actually... Even though it's it's not a super well known um, political theory, it actually has has left a a very strong mark in terms of some of the terminology that we use. And this is something we're going to get to heavily today. That there's there's some there's some neologisms that appear within this thought process that many people who don't even buy into the solutions of people like Yarvin or Nick Land, which are the two chief yeah. writers of this, they have their own particular solutions and you don't even need to agree with their solutions in order to understand the phrases and terminologies that they use and how that influences political discourse. So it's actually really relevant to a lot of the political debates that we use today because of the impact on some of the terminology. Okay. So let, let's kind of go down and look at some of the, the beliefs here. And the, and the big thing I want to focus on is understanding where some of the people that are, are, are really fostering this kind of the post-libertarianism is one way to put it, but there's some other people that were actually far more, I would argue more like left wing. 
um, left-wing progressive, maybe even called left-wing socialist. And let me read off what this, what this means, and we'll kind of dig into it a little bit. Post-libertarianism is a school of thought stemming from libertarianism. Born out of the need to rectify its contradictions, this is done through a rejection of dogmatic opposition to any government intervention beyond the bare minimum, and instead embracing a more pragmatic approach in favor of a more proactive government for the sake of maintaining individual liberty. And while this doesn't entail authoritarianism, it's enough for post-libertarianism to be effectively become de-aligned from libertarianism. While not being libertarian, post-libertarianism still maintains a lot of ideas, such as an affinity towards free markets, skepticism towards state control of information, and anti-interventionism. So a good way to put this would be, um, if, if you think about libertarian thought, it really is rooted in this concept of the non-aggression principle. And so the non-aggression principle is this idea that you can do what you want, provided you're not infringing on the rights of other people to do what they want. So it, it really doesn't get into the, the moral questions with respect to your individual actions. This is why you'll, you'll see, you know, libertarian party candidates, um, essentially, especially the more hardcore ones calling for an abolition of, of most every single law, especially those laws that might be associated with vice, like drug legalization, legalization of prostitution, things like that. Cause they look at it as, as long as it's a voluntary transaction, the state or anybody else shouldn't be intervening. Now that doesn't mean you can't be a libertarian and say, I don't like those things. It's just, I'm not going to use state authority to prevent those things. One of the, one of the greatest, give the, um, when, when, when you're describing someone that loves free markets, that loves individual liberty, that loves personal responsibility, and certainly wants to live in an environment where those things can, can foster, the real question is, is how easy is it to coexist with other people that believe the exact opposite? They don't, they don't want to maximize individual liberty. They don't want to maximize personal responsibility. They want to emphasize more state control, more state uh, provision of goods and services. Like those two things are really, really hard to coexist. And there was a, there was a great clip from Tim pool that I think kind of sums up in a very easy to understand way, this idea of post libertarianism, like go ahead and give that. Yeah, example, Cause you it, saw it. It was like, what? I, I think it was like a week ago. It was very recent. It, it, it was either a week or two ago, maybe even less than that. Um, Tim pool was talking about um, this growing push for censorship that you see from certain elements of the left and Poole brought up, you know, there, there was once a time just a few years ago that I, I was, you know, in the Voltaire mode, right? I don't care what you believe. I don't care what your ideology is. I don't care what you're pushing for. I will defend to the death your right for freedom of speech, period, the end, without question. And then he paused and he was like, I don't, I don't believe that anymore. I believe in defending freedom of speech for people who believe in freedom of speech. But if you don't believe in freedom of speech, I will happily oblige and not defend your freedom of speech. And I, in some ways, he didn't use the term, right? But like yeah. in some ways, that actually, I think, encapsulates this like post-libertarian mindset, which is from their perspective, they're still operating in this libertarian framework that the ideal way to go about anything involving society or government is using the non-aggression principle. But how do you use the non-aggression principle towards people who inherently want to be aggressive towards you? Yeah. And that kind of gets to what Temple was was talking about. So so somebody that, that would say that they're a post-libertarian, and I, I, I don't identify as a post-libertarian, but I understand the thought process, right? But somebody who who would, you know, believe in in what Poole was was advocating for there, that that that's not a libertarian position, right? To say I'm not gonna support freedom of speech for people who don't support 
my freedom of speech, yeah. right? But that is, you know, so that's not inherently libertarian, but you're still operating from this framework that ideally, yes, I want maximum liberty, maximum freedom for everybody. But I mean, it's it's basically an admission that libertarians cannot coexist with far left woke social progressives who believe in things like the equity fallacy mm -hmm. and think that the only way to to adjudicate any sort of any sort of disparity that exists within society is active government discrimination against people and redistribution and redistribution of wealth or privilege or whatever you know whatever well, the buzzword it, they want to use and, and i think again this is one of those this is <laughs> this is one of those times where you're, where you're looking at something i i described this to somebody once where i said look the non-aggression principle is a fairly unassailable philosophy um, the, the only difficulty comes with the practical application of it when you're living in a society with other people that don't believe in the non-aggression principle. Uh, and then how do you how do you effectively organize yourselves in such a way to where you can defend against those people when they are organized and they will come after you? And, and that's what I think the post-libertarianism post -libertarianism is kind of pointing toward. It's like, look, I don't disagree with your principles. I just don't see how how, how do you live in peace with people that are, are absolutely determined to make sure that the state controls your life. You're not going to do that. You're, so you're not going to use the state in an effective way to defend your liberties, but you're going to allow the state eventually because you have no mechanism to stop it to be used to infringe upon yours. And then you're going to sit there nobly defending their right to, you know, say whatever they want when they're now actively using the state to crack down on your ability to say what you want. And, and the question has always been, okay, well, that, how do, what's the right answer? Like, what's the right answer? Because you don't want to be the sort of person that says, okay, freedom of speech for me, but not for anyone else. You certainly don't want to be the person that says freedom of speech for nobody. And I think what Tim Poole was hitting on this, it's like, I believe in freedom of speech for everybody that also agrees in freedom of speech. So you can say what you want and you can disagree with me on, on whatever you want, provided that you also believe in my freedom to say the same. But the moment you're going to say, no, no, no. I believe in freedom of speech, but you can't say the things I don't want you to say because of, he goes, okay, you don't believe in freedom of speech. And therefore there is no obligation upon me to protect your freedom of speech. The way I think he said it was fine. I will honor your decision to not support freedom of speech by not supporting your freedom of speech. And again, with all of these things, we can, we can look at that and say, gosh, that, that I can see where that could be dangerous, but I can also see where it's dangerous if, People that don't believe in genuine freedom of speech are continually able to infringe on the rights of other people. And all of a sudden we find ourselves going, what the heck? Right. They're, they're sitting here. It's like we're over here fighting marquee of the Queensberry rules and they're sitting there just hitting you in the junk. And you're like, wait, is it? that's that's against the rules. But I'll, I'll defend to the death. You're right. To do, well, no, that's that's not the way this should go. So I, I believe that that is heavily influential and, and a lot of the people that are, are talking about this now, this begs the question. So what's their solution to it? And we're going to get to that. But the first thing I want to get into is talking about some of these other terms uh, that have been coined. So let's go ahead and scroll down a little bit. We're going to get to um, keep scrolling down. I'll tell you when to stop. There, there we go. The neo-actionary neologisms. Screw up that term. All right. So this, this is this where we get into some of the terms, right? So the, the first thing, again, as, as we expressed before, what they're really doing is identifying what they see to be as the problems with the current system. 
And one of the most popular terms, and we've mentioned it here before, is this term, the cathedral. And so to define what they mean by the cathedral, here's what it means. The cathedral within the context of neo-actionary discourse is a term used to refer to a society's intellectual elite, meaning a class of people who are able to decide what the average person thinks is true or false, right or wrong, and important or unimportant. And the way that they kind of break this down is kind of like this, this collusion uh, between um, the, the academia and media. In fact, it's, it's actually an indirect collusion. This is, yes, th- th- it's, not, this it's is, not like plan. There's no circum. There's no guy behind the curtain. Th- th- the this is one of the biggest misconceptions that people get when they think about, and we've talked about the cathedral many times before on this podcast, actually, because by the way, you don't need to be a new reactionary and understand what the cathedral is. It's a real thing. And, and the reason that we brought it up before is because, Quite frankly, once you understand what it is, you you understand what the problem is. The problem is the problem is not that Joe Biden is in the White House. Yeah. That's actually a very minor problem. Yeah. The problem is is that the New York Times, the uh, you know, administration of University of California at Berkeley and the board of directors at Disney all happen to believe and think and act in the exact same way. And when you understand why they all happen to believe and think and act in the exact same way, you start to understand what the real problem is. You actually, you start to become red pilled. So the counterpoint though, that people will have on the left is, Oh, this is all a conspiracy theory. You're just peddling nonsense. You're peddling a conspiracy theory. It's actually an anti-conspiracy theory. If you, when you understand the, the workings of the cathedral, you actually understand it's an organic process. It's not a directed process. There is no central mechanism. There actually is no, maybe it's an incorrect term. Maybe Yarvin made a mistake because there is no Pope. There, there is no pope of progressivism that is dictating the cathedral. There's no car, you know, set of cardinals. It's a, it's an organic process that reinforces incentive structures that 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 lead to people operating within certain elements of society, usually journalism and academia, but also outside of those two things, to believe the same progressive mantras. Yeah. Well, it's it's a way of, and we've talked about Gramsci talking about this through the institutions, the march through the institutions. And, and it was this concept that the reason why Marxism hasn't been successful within capitalist countries is because, according to Gramsci, there's this, there's this whole culture which reinforces capitalism. And that culture is recognized not just in economic transactions, it's recognized in social institutions, cultural institutions, academia, the media, the sports team, like everything, it's, it's all there. And his argument was is that if you really want to unseat that and you want to give Marxism a chance to succeed, it's not going to happen by workers of the world unite. It's actually going to happen by actually taking the culturally shaping institutions and, and changing those either from within or creating alternatives, which would then create the dominant narrative within a society so that now instead of um instead of uh you know dogmas or statements associated with free market economics and private property rights and individual liberty instead it would be associated with things like collectivism and equity and egalitarianism well you can see that taking place within the united states but what they're pointing out and i want to read this because i thought this was a really good summation of it he goes it is worth to note that the cathedral and its modern incarnation what we're talking about is not a formal institution that people just belong to but rather an informal network of leaders of the before aforementioned institutions that happen to agree on most important matters harvard the new york times disney and the guardian rarely disagree on anything, for example. And 
so when, when you think about this and how many times have you heard conservatives talking about like, why does it feel like every single institution, uh, again, a culturally shaping institution, 10 minutes ago, they weren't doing any of this crap that they're doing in Disney, Disney. But then all of a sudden stuff started getting, you know, stuff started becoming more mainstream within academia and the people that went to academia and then went into HR departments and then the media picked up on it. And then Hollywood is now a, a blight and this all happened within a relatively short period of time. And everyone's sitting here going, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. That's what happens when you have near complete capture of these culturally shaping institutions. They're able to coordinate, not because the CEO of Disney got on the phone with the CEO of the New York times who got on the phone with the Dean of Harvard and said, all right, what are we doing? It was more of like, no, Harvard produced, you know, a, a group of HR execs and attorneys and everyone else that then went to go work for these companies that then informed these companies that the way they really need to be doing is reinforcing this particular narrative. Media picked up on it very easily. And now it's transforming itself into everything from academic curriculums at your primary school to the way you watch Disney films. And so it, it's, it's not, again, it's not one guy behind, it's not Oz behind the curtain, like you're turning all the wheels. It just kind of works this way naturally. And, and it hasn't only worked this way on the left, right? Things have kind of worked this way on the right as well. The question is, is what produces better results? And this is the part where we want to get into what do they mean by the red pill? So the red pill, and this is within the context of discourse, a red pill is any realization or experience that disconnects an individual from the established cathedral. The term is also a reference to the popular film trilogy, The Matrix. And the reason why the term is so relevant to what they're talking about is that when all of the culturally shaping institutions have created now dominant lines of thought, uh, dominant terms that you must use, um, inclusive language, which must be, you know, expressed and all these things. And the moment you don't, it's not that they haul you off to prison necessarily, but you're, you're canceled, you're ostracized. There's problems from it. And with the whole red pill idea is just like in the movie, the matrix, where you could take the blue pill or the red pill, the blue pill allowed him to continue to operate within the context of the matrix. The red pill showed him what was actually happening. And this is the part where I will tell you a major red pill moment for me. A major red pill moment for me was when I went to the store and there was no food on the shelves. And that's why Good Ranchers is the organization that you want to make sure that to break away, to break away from the matrix, which is, you know, the, the, the commercial sector being ever more dominated by these supply chains, which are, which are not controlled within the United States half the times, right? When, when, when you're sitting here and you're wondering, why do I not have, you know, the, the, the beef, the pork, the poultry, the seafood that I'm used to having at my store. And then you find out it's because we don't have enough federal inspection stations to go through this stuff. And oh, by the way, you know, a significant number of them are actually owned by foreign companies. And you're thinking to yourself, how do I break away from that? Or how do I, how do I at least not be dependent upon that system. Well, Red Ranchers, or excuse me, Good Ranchers <laughs> is giving you your red pill moment. This is where you can go on their website, use promo code Nick. We really appreciate them supporting the show and you can get $25 off your order. You can get free shipping. Plus if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, which you can start, you can stop, you can modify, you're going to get two pounds of free ground beef per month for two years, for two years with that order. I mean, think about that for a second. If you want it, again, this is your red pill moment, right? You take this and you're no longer dependent. You're no longer dependent upon the matrix. 
Upon the beef cathedral. Upon the beef cathedral. <laughs> the iron polygon of <laughs> So listen, this is they again, we're not we're not only thankful to Good Ranchers, obviously, for supporting the show. And we've we've actually had Ben Spell um, you know, in the studio before and talked to him about him. We we really do appreciate that he does create a great product and that he he provides organizations like ours, shows like ours to be able to provide you with additional deals on top of that good product yep. in order to set up something that makes sense for you, not necessarily for the matrix or the cathedral of, of meat as it's real, currently done. Real quick, one of our great listeners says, Good Ranchers Italian Chicken is thawing in my kitchen right now. That's what I'm talking about. They, I'm talking they about. come in clutch. I, I will I will say this too. Like I I first went to Good Ranchers for the beef. Um, we stayed for the chicken. The chicken is the chicken is really good. As someone that actually like I have raised my own Cornish crosses, and I do the Joel Salatin method where I have the chicken tractor out there and I move yep. them every day yep. and the whole deal. And and we, we've raised good chicken. Good Ranchers chicken is better than what I've actually raised at home. And I, I hate saying that. All right. So in the context of neo reactionary discourse taking or really political discourse, yeah. even though people who use the term might not realize it. When you take the red, you, you know what taking the red pill means politically? It means you understand what the cathedral is. Yes. And Yarvin describes it in his blog, Unqualified Reservations, his old blog. He actually has a new one now. I think it's called Gray Mirror. But his older blog, which again, he was writing this stuff like 15 years ago. That's what makes it incredible because some of the stuff that he was writing about and some of the problems that he was identifying, he identified wokeism before wokeism existed. He kind of predicted the emergence of wokeism as a natural outsource of liberal democracy. He, he predicted it many years beforehand that this was going to happen. Yeah. Um, and when when you when you take the red pill, you understand what the cathedral is. He describes the cathedral in a in a very short format as as academia plus journalism. Yeah. Now, when we use the term the Leviathan, we actually mean a lot more than that. We mean yeah. the cathedral. And we're going to get into that later. We're going to do an in-depth dive of what we mean by the Leviathan. Plus a lot more. Yeah. But the reason that this is important is because, quite frankly, you can, I mean, everybody uses this term. Yeah. This is now a very popular term. And so if you want to understand the origins of the term, you have to understand this movement. And I, I would argue that that in of itself is a reason for you to be educated on on these thinkers and what they came up with, because they've they've come up with some of these terminologies that I think are incredibly important to explain again the clown world that we're currently living in. Well, have you um, Hamilton? See if we can look this up real quick. Sure. Remember that YouTube video, and it, what it does is it shows the one local news anchor starting off with I a particular do. thing, and then it spreads out to another one, spreads out to another one, and it figures out that it's this entire you know it, it's all these news anchors that they're, they're all affiliates and they all operate and they're all repeating the exact same thing. And, and a lot of people look at this like, oh, you, you look at this as a conspiracy theory. This is just, you know, this happens all the time. With Like, I don't know that that actually helps your argument that it happens all the time. But um, I, I want to see if we can bring that up at some point and, and take a look at it. Because I, I think it, for some people, um, oh, do we have it? We have it. Okay, let's go ahead. And I, look. I am just that fast, Nick. My gosh, way, way to go, Hamilton. Let's see if the audio works. Fox San Antonio's <laughs> Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso, Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we, we are concerned about trouble and trouble. Responsible. One-sided news stories. 
plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, so, I think we get the that point. That is so yeah. creepy. I, it is. It is super creepy. And and I think that when somebody put this together, um, yeah, the, the name of the person that we just saw was Shoot Me Dead on, um, <laughs> on YouTube. But this video is just nuts. And again, it's one thing to say, well, the, again, these are all just affiliates of Essential Thing. Obviously, the news stories are fed through the Associated Press. And what's the big deal? Well, the big deal was specifically what they were talking about there and how it was all like the prepared talking points. And I think growing up, I remember, uh, and again, I'm 44. Growing up, I remember watching the news with my grandparents. And it was just, you just kind of took it for granted that the stuff that you were getting on your local news, or maybe you were, because we weren't really watching cable news network at that time, right? This was, this was giving you a, 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 you know, a fair, accurate representation of what was going on in the world. And, and there was a certain level of trust associated with that. And I also lived, I also grew up in a town that had a, a state university in it. And, and it was a little bit weird and a little bit quirky, but it was still, oh, this is a good thing because this is higher education and it's going to give you greater expertise in a particular field and, you know, make you a more well-rounded, you know, person. And all of a sudden you, you reach a point where you're like, I don't buy this anymore. It, it's not that it can't be true that media outlets can be reliable. It's not that it can't be true that certain reporters can be good. It's not that it can't be true that certain universities can, can serve a very, very valuable function and purpose or professors within that university. But it's, it's more of this idea that we're starting to see the collusion or, or if not the collusion, um, kind of this, this random cooperation that seems to be taking place within media and within academia. And you saw this, especially during COVID where if you didn't do what you were told, it's not as if you had a varying viewpoint. It's not as if they even said you were making a bad argument. It was you don't trust the science or you don't trust the experts and you were to be ostracized and silenced. I, I think COVID more than anything else red-pilled a lot of people when we kind of realized the processes that were going on. And quite frankly, it was, it was with the Republican in the White House, right? That was one of the things that I think illustrated to so many people how this idea that this is just about who's president or this is just about who controls Congress. No, it isn't. This is so much bigger than that. And again, it's not some crazy conspiratorial, you know, concept. It's like you said, Christian, it's the anti-conspiracy. It's the idea that no politics is downstream from culture and the primary culturally shaping institutions have adopted a certain worldview and philosophy largely. And that is now translated into completely revamping the narrative that we use in our day-to-day -day language. N none of us, none of us assumed. And I, here's another thing I'll get told isn't happening. I was just talking to one of my colleagues and she goes, Nick, I represent a rural district and I have three kids in one of our school districts that identify as furries and the school is accommodating it. The school is accommodating it. 10 years ago, Democrats would have thought that was absurd. So you're going to have to explain to me because it wasn't a Democrat president. Joe Biden in it 10 years ago was not saying, we really need to recognize the value of furries within our primary education system. That was not a thing. But it became very, very prominent within the media, within arts and entertainment, within academia. And the proper politicians took the proper marching orders and recognized this is just the way we're supposed to think about this now. And that's what the red pill is. The red pill is recognizing it for what it is and saying, 
and, and here's the most important part. It's not just about recognizing. I think the next step is saying, no, I'm not going to live by lies. Yeah. No, this is wrong. This is incorrect. And you don't get to bludgeon me. You don't get to embarrass me. You don't get to try to threaten me into repeating what you're saying. You can try to convince me. But what we've recognized is that their version of convincing seems to be more along the lines of do what we say or there will be negative consequences as opposed to this is what we believe and here's the mountain of evidence or here's the logical argument that explains it effectively. In fact, logic in, in fact, when logic falls apart for them or when the evidence falls apart for them, all of a sudden the argument transfers over into, well, of course you would say that you're part of the patriarchy. Of course you would say that you're a cisgendered, heteronormative, whatever, whatever. And that's what's so, that's what's so frustrating. Uh, so, uh, Trump says, uh, Trump or the sweaty fat guy. Thank you again for the super chat says it's not collusion. It's capture. The education apparatus and media have been bought and the owners demand. They feed us that narrative. I, I think, look, we always try to be careful about, we, we do try to be careful about speaking in like this complete absolutist terms, but I do think there's something to be said for this idea that when you have organizations like BlackRock and Vanguard all pushing the same thing with like ESG scores and you have all of academia pushing stuff with DEI, I mean, yeah, you get to the point where uh, you can have a lot of institutions, you can have a lot of companies that don't even particularly want to be owned by this sort of institution, but they're so reliant upon them for investment capital and this is, this is a third component. In fact, that's actually a great, thank you very much. That's a great segue. Go ahead and scroll down a little bit because we want to talk to the next thing here. So we've got the cathedral, right? Think of that of like the arts and entertainment. Speaking of that, I, I want to read, I, I, I read a little bit more of the description on this just to drive home the point to people of what the cathedral is for, from the context of these new reactionary writers. Yeah. Um, it, it goes on to say that um, this, this wiki, I'm going to read from it. It goes on to say... Um, Historically, this role was filled by various religious institutions, hence the usage of the term cathedral. It is intentionally contrasted with the institutions that fulfill the role of the cathedral in the modern age, being schools, universities, the media, and the entertainment industry, who largely market themselves as secular. It is worth noting that the cathedral and its modern incarnation is not, this is an important thing, not a formal institution that people just belong to, but rather an informal network of leaders of the before- aforementioned institutions that happen to agree on the most important matters. And you brought it up yeah. earlier that, you know, Harvard, the New York times, Disney, and the guardian rarely disagree. For example, there's, um, I, I, I don't have the, uh, the exact quote in front of me, but there was a, a quote from one of Yarvin's pieces where he says, you know, Montesquieu must've thought himself to be very intelligent when he thought that the way that you're going to restrict government was through the, the separation of powers, right? You're going to create a legislative branch an executive branch, a judicial branch, and that they're, they're just going to check each other. And then he actually writes in the in the in his blog. He's like, you know, pray tell, dear Marquis. You know, <laughs> what do you do when the people who fill these roles all go to the same schools, all consume the same media, all go at that time, you know, all go to the same place? Nowadays, it'd be watch the same movies. Yeah. Like, 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 what do you do when the people who fill these roles that are supposed to be mutually antagonistic towards each other in order to preserve liberty again, separation of powers? Yeah. What do you do when the judges and the legislators and the president all believe the same thing? Well, they're ju they're just going to work with each other yeah. and elevate power together. This is something that I remember thinking as a kid when I was in high school. I kept thinking like, well, how do you limit the government when the Supreme Court works with Congress and works with the White House to collectively grow the power of the federal government? Yeah. You you have to have something outside the government to do it. And that's what got me into being interested in things like the Tenth Amendment and federalism and states' rights. But mm -hmm. 
unfortunately, many of those things have gone by the wayside. So this is actually one thing that like neo-reactionaries would endorse probably, which is getting rid of the 17th Amendment, for example. Yeah. But like the reason that I bring this up is because I really want to drive home this point, because even though red pill is a term that is more popular and well-known, I would actually argue that cathedral is the more important term. Yeah. And by the way, you don't need to use the term cathedral. People have, I've said this before, people have used different terms, the system. Yeah. Andrew Tate calls it the matrix. Um, we've called it the Leviathan, which we actually mean to be more than just the cathedral, but we also include the cathedral within it. It doesn't matter what the term is, the establishment. Like It doesn't matter what the term is. The, the, the fact is, is that this is a, a, a mechanism through which you can understand why is it that virtually every institution in this country all believe the same thing. Mm -hmm. They should, like, like wh why on earth should the board of Disney believe identical same policies and prescriptions as the New York Times? What does Disney have or to the, do that's political the, in the first place? Or the sociology place? department at Cal Berkeley. Like, yeah. if you're, this is the part that I think is so confusing to people. If you're looking at Disney and you're looking at, okay, what's the core audience at Disney? Well, the core audience is, is families. Um, it's it's kids and families. That that's that's the whole concept. So why are they wading into all of this other stuff? Well, you could make the argument that well, they're just expanding the definition of the family. Okay, but really, <laughs> I mean, this seems like you're you're doing stuff that. Again, businesses businesses exist to be able to produce a profit. Now, they should produce the profit in ethical ways, right? It's not profit or at the expense of everything, but it's the idea of, okay, we have shareholders and we have customers. And the way that we take care of the people that have actually invested in our company is by doing a good job for the customers. But they're directly antagonistic to the customers at this point. And it starts to beg the question, who are your real customers, and, and I, I get into the issues like this all the time where constituents will be coming to me with, with problems that I'm helping them through with state agencies, sometimes trying to help with federal agencies. And they'll be asked like, Nick, why is it this way? I'm like, because you're not the customer. They're like, what do you, what do you mean? I'm the, I'm the taxpayer. I'm the citizen. I'm like, yeah, but you're not the customer. They don't answer to you. I so said, this is always why I'm skeptical of the government taking control for more and more and more things because they don't answer to you. They answer to me. I'm the one that gets to vote on their budget, not you, right? I, I'm the one that gets to potentially make policy that will regulate and oversee them, not you. And, and they have to do business with you by law. This is why you don't want them having more control. Like, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent there, but it's this whole idea of when you're not the customer, the ability of power that you have. And that's why I'm starting to wonder with all these companies and what they're doing right now. It's like, who's the actual customer? Yep. So... The next one I want to go to, so we've talked about the red pill. We've talked about the cathedral. Uh, we got two more things that we want to talk about that neo-reactionaries, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of switch here a little bit and go into this whole concept of the Leviathan, what it is, and how do you beat it. So the Iron Polygon is an extension of this concept of the Iron Triangle. So according to neo-reactionary thought, this describes a system of interlocking societal institutions that mutually reinforce each other to maintain the status quo of a particular political order. All right. So according to this thought, the Iron Polygon consists of the three main institutions, the cathedral, so that's your news, that's your academia, the corporate managerial complex. You could probably think of this as not only like Disney, but also things like BlackRock, and then the military industrial complex. So, you know, that's this is all your large companies engaging in, in or that, that benefit from the production of military arms and equipment. Now, here's the here's the important thing to understand about all this before we get into it. Is there any problem, inherent problem with the media? No. Any inherent problem with arts and entertainment? No. Any inherent problem with corporations? No. Any inherent problem with investment banks? No. Any inherent problem with companies that actually produce 
you know, weapon systems that a country uses to defend itself. No, nothing inherently wrong, nothing morally inherently wrong with it. So where does the problem come in? Well, the problem comes in, let's use the military industrial complex, for instance. The problem comes in when it looks at it as its sole responsibility is just is to do nothing more than to continue to perpetuate conditions which it benefits from. Well, if that condition is war, well, then theoretically you would, you would have a situation, right? And this has been talked about. Eisenhower talked about this, right? And I don't think anyone's accusing Eisenhower of being a pacifist. But Eisenhower worried about the military-industrial complex, this idea that when you, when you have a company whose sole function is to produce arms, munitions, and weapons at a, at a macro scale, well, then obviously it's going to look, it, it has an interest in foreign intervention. Okay, when you have a media or you have an academia that has been essentially captured by a particular political ideology, well, then obviously it's going to use its influence in order to push that particular political ideology, especially when it no longer sees objectivity as a valuable trait. Right? It, it, I, I think we could at least hope that if somebody was going into journalism, the idea would be is like, well, we want you to arrive at the truth. Well, when you've been told that the truth is, is that there's oppressor and oppressed, and that your job is to speak for the oppressed. Well, then now all of a sudden, if that's the lens for which you view all of reality, that becomes problematic. And that becomes a tool for something that's, that's problem. When you're BlackRock, and now all of a sudden you're not concerned about the fiduciary duty that you have to your investors, you're concerned about pushing a particular political ideology, and you will destroy businesses if they don't follow it, and you will prop ones up, even if they're not very good, if they do follow up, that's where this all becomes problematic. Let's go ahead and uh, scroll down here a little bit. Um. So we kind of, we just kind of talked about all this, um, scroll down, scroll down a little bit more where it says together, together, these three institutions form the iron polygon, which the neo-reactionaries believe is a self-reinforcing system that is uh, resistant to change or reform. The iron polygon ensures that the power remains in the hands of the ruling elite and perpetuates a system of governments that neo-reactionaries believe is efficient, stable, and just, or don't believe it is, should yeah, say, yeah, should there's a typo there, but this is the part where they get into, this is when, have you ever heard the statement, the unit party? Right. A lot of people have heard the uniparty. Well, the way that they describe it is what they call the red and blue empire or red and blue government. And this is what they mean by that. But it's very, very close to the uniparty. The concepts of the red and blue government clipped to red gov and blue gov is a specific power analysis of U.S. politics. It's the notion that the United States is not under the control of a single government, rather of two each with their own internal and foreign policies. These two empires being the military and police-based red empire represented in the U.S. Congress by the Republican Party and the blue empire based around every other part of the iron polygon represented by the Democratic Party. So this is one of those things where you could look at it where traditionally most people would have associated law enforcement and the military with being more conservative. But you probably, and, and you once upon a time, you would have probably included like the Department of Justice and the FBI in that. And then you would have looked at every other bureaucratic institution and you, you would have more closely associated it with the left. And so the point that they're, they're bringing up here is that this idea that these two, these two entities are completely at odds with one another isn't really accurate. Um, that there, that there is some friction, there is some disagreement but overall, protection of the status quo is the most important thing. And, and insofar as the status quo is under threat, they'll forget all the other differences and they'll focus on just protecting the status quo. Jim Ross, thank you very much for the uh, um, 
the super chat to end free speech. Those in power change the meaning of words. Orwell in 1984 pointed out that the ministry of truth was censorship. History is purged of events deemed wrong. Think dissent is suppressed by force when required that. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. Um, this is, this is one of the things where when um, I did an interview a while back and I talked about the whole like, concept of how do you deconstruct a nation? You first have to give it an identity crisis. And that identity crisis starts with disconnecting people from their past by completely reinventing the story or only telling parts of the story that cause them to be ashamed of it. Then you separate them from the other institutions within their life that give them purpose and meaning, the family, the church, you know, and everything else. And then once you have someone that's disconnected from the past and struggling with their own sense of meaning and purpose and identity, you offer something else. And what do you offer? Well, you offer the movement or you offer the revolution or you offer whatever else it is. And that ends up being their identity. And this is where you get into concepts like Eric Hoffer, where he explains the, the history of mass movements, where once someone has fully given their identity over to a movement, the idea is, is that when the movement does something horrible, because it is in service to a greater good, it is therefore acceptable. And that's how you get people that would be, you know, that's how you get someone that goes to the, the gas chambers at, at, you know, Auschwitz, and then goes home and reads a, a storybook to their children at night. Jordan Peterson hammers on this a lot, like this concept that we all believe that that's something that evil people did over there, as opposed to actually recognizing the capacity for evil that, that we each have as individuals. Um, I want to thank uh, Merrick too for the um, super chat, the dye of the pill that has so many colors right nowadays, um, has one meaning only waking up to certain truth or ideology. Be careful using it before the other side will use it against us. <laughs> no, there's, it's funny they actually talk about it in this article that now there's a whole bunch of other pills that are not only politically or um, based in political philosophy, but based in like workout culture and a number of other things as well. I mean, it, it, it can be used, but quick. Can I get uh, ask yeah. a question real quick, please from Jake question, Nick, do you feel that the left and right is basically the same? Do they vote? They do vote mostly the same. Um, the left and the right. No Republicans and Democrats. You could argue. I mean, in Virginia, there, there are clear differences, but yeah. This is actually something that the neo reactionaries will talk about when they when they come up with the the term the inner party and the outer party. Mm -hmm. So, for example, like most neo reactionaries will probably say the Republican Party as an institution, not every elected Republican, but the yeah. Republican Party as an institution is basically controlled opposition. Now, when you say that, that sounds like oh, you're it's a conspiracy theory. No, it, it, again, it, it, controlled opposition insofar as conservatives today by and large are trying to preserve what progressives were pushing for 20 years ago. Yeah. That's what I mean by controlled opposition. Oh. They, they, they still operate within, basically what they're doing is, is that they're operating within the framework that liberal democracy and progressivism is a good thing. We just support progressivism from 20 years ago. We don't support progressivism today. I, I, I think so having, having from inside the system, right? Cause obviously I'm, I'm an elected Republican in a state legislature. Um, here's what I've noticed. The, the, to Christian's point, the ideology of talking to certain Republicans is very, very different from the ideology that you see talking with other Democrats. Now I, I will say that I, I used to believe in more diversity of thought within the democratic party. I do think they do a much better job of like coming together on a singular issue. Even if it's one that 30% of the Democrats might be very uncomfortable with, they tend to get on board fairly quickly. The thing that I think is interesting to note, and this is why um, Andrew Breitbart, this is why William F. Buckley Jr. all said the same thing about politics being downstream from culture is that in, in, in democratic elections, 50% plus one wins. And, and so 
you have people that view representative government as the idea that my job is to come down and do the will of my constituents. And I understand that theory, but what it also means is that, okay, what happens if a majority of your constituents or even what you believe to be a majority of your constituents wants something that you think is wrong? How should you vote? Well, my position has always been, I have to vote in accordance with what I told my constituents I believe, not what the latest poll alleges. And then if my constituents later on decide they don't want me, so be it. But my job is not to say, well, I, I, gosh, I don't know what the MSNBC poll said today. How, how am I supposed to vote on this particular issue? Representative government is about the idea of I am, I am honest with my constituents about what I believe. They then decide whether or not that's reflective of what they believe. And then they go send me because they're not reading 2000 bills. I'm supposed to do that. They're not engaged in the committee process. I'm supposed to do that. They're delegating certain authorities to me in order to accurately represent them because they trust that in that moment when an amendment comes or something changes or we have the floor debate, I'm going to display a certain amount of competence combined with a, a commitment to the principles that I told them I believe with in order to do the right thing. And what I find is that more and more, especially when you have areas where they're very, very competitive, there is a desire to be risk averse. Well, when liberal progressivism, I don't even like to call it liberal progressives, woke progressivism is largely in control or largely dominant. We'll say that. Well, largely dominant within academia, the media, and arts and entertainment. That has a, a huge cultural push and effect on the electorate. And so if you're someone that is scared to death that you're going to lose your race by one or two points, well, then you have a natural inclination to move toward those more risk-averse positions. And so that's what you see happening over time is that the left has done an excellent job pushing the Overton window, that, that, that window of allowable thought and opinion over to the left. And so a lot of times people like me will be in a position where all of my colleagues might be voting one way and I'm voting differently. And they're like, why are you doing this? I'm like, because of this. And like, oh, but people don't really care about that. But I do because I think it's wrong. And if the people I represent don't like that I did that, they can get rid of me but I'm not going to change what I think about this based off of your perception of opinion polls or even your perception of what your constituents might want. And so that's the problem. I, I don't think the Republican party and the Democrat are just absolutely the same. They're not, they fight for di very different things. And you, you've seen at times where conservatives actually do feel like, okay, the people are behind us. Look at Tennessee, look at Florida, look at Idaho. Okay, but in places like Virginia, where it's very, very close, that's a very, very different proposition. Just like in Illinois, where they never have to worry about Republicans doing Illinois. They go as far to the left as they possibly can. And so that, that's the thing that I think is taking place. But I will say this, once you get up into a certain level of power, especially on the federal level, the idea is maintain the power. Now, some of this, this is going to be the weird part. Some of this is rooted in what you might call... Uh, if you, if you wanted to be as generous as possible, and I typically don't, but if you wanted to be as generous as possible on, on giving the other side their due, their attitude is, well, we've got to work with them when we're in power because we're going to have to work with them when they're in power. And what I think too many conservatives or too many libertarians have failed to understand is they're not going to work with you when they're in power. They, they, don't, do, they don't see that as their job. And so I, I, that's the part where I think it's problematic and you get a lot of weak Republicans in positions of power. Okay. So 
Do we need to go any more into the Red and Blue Empire and, and what that entails? I, I think everyone kind of get. I mean, we could talk about it. We could do the various breakdown of institutions. I, I will say that it is there's, definitely the Uniparty. There, there's one it. other. There's one other thing. Yeah, again, a, a great way to think. There's one other thing that you should you should take into consideration here that I think is important to understand. And this is something that. Um, some people call it the deep state. Some people call it the bureaucratic state. But one of the arguments that's made with this whole idea of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, you see where they say the blue empire is based around every other part of the iron polygon represented by the Democratic Party. So, again, the bureaucratic state. The reason why that's problematic and, and interestingly enough, very anti-democratic for all the people on the left that are always talking about our democracy, our democracy, our democracy. You can elect whoever you want in Congress. You can elect whoever you want as president. The, the federal bureaucracy is so massive that if they want to slow roll what you're doing, they can because the president is actually incredibly limited on who they can fire within the federal government. So even though the president is technically in charge of the federal government, that doesn't mean they can just fire whoever they want. And the reason why that system was put in that play, that civil service system was put in place was to avoid what they called the spoils system. Because it used to be when the federal government was much smaller, one of the things that candidates for president would do was they would offer kind of cush positions right to their political allies. And so the federal government would change over fairly regularly and people thought, okay, this is, this is a perverse incentive. We're going to create a, a civil service and then we're going to limit the president's ability to just award people federal jobs. Now, again, on a reasonable side, you can understand where that might be problematic, but the other, the perverse incentive that has now been created is that you have a massively powerful bureaucracy that it can essentially slow roll any of the activities of a Congress or a president, they can just wait till the next election cycle. And that is, again, this is one of the reasons why Trump focused so much on this idea that we need to move more people in, out of the civil service category and into the category where the executive branch can fire. Because if you're not actually carrying out the, the, uh, the, um, the laws that Congress has put in place and you're not allowing the president to effectively carry out those laws, well, then now you're directly standing in the way. And, and that's very problematic. Uh, Angel D, thank you for the super chat. A problem with representative elections, 99% of politicians are super dishonest. How do we fix that long term? Well, I, I think that the point that the neo-reactionaries would say is that you're not going to. <laughs> their, their argument is you're, you're not going to fit it uh, with you know, democracy as we currently experience it within the United States. That's their position, not mine. This is why Yarvin says that Cthulhu only swims left. Yeah. The, the argument is, is that because, and again, this goes all the way back to ancient Greek philosophers, which said that the problem with democracy, as soon as people figure out that they can award to themselves gifts from the treasury uh, by voting, well, now you, you have this, you have this negative feedback loop where you have more and more people that want to be in the category that are getting things from the government. And they want to avoid being the category that actually have to contribute to the government. And you always find politicians that can win elections by promising you free stuff at the expense of other people. And the way political math works is as long as I'm giving away more stuff than to the people I'm taking from, I can win reelection. Now, I think there's other ways to deal with that, but we want to stay on the neo-reactionary for right now. So what we're going to talk about, okay, what do they want? And this is where we're going to get into, we've, we've talked about them identifying the problem. They have a problem with the Uniparty, which they call the Blue and Red Empire. They have a problem with the cathedral, which is the merging of academia, or not merging, but academia and um, the media essentially working in concert with one another. And they have a problem with what they call kind of this iron polygon, which is various uh, commercial, military, and cultural um, institutions which work in coordination with one another to kind of protect their own power structure, right? Okay. 
So what do they want to do about it? And Christian, you want to take, you want to go to neocameralism first? Yeah. So, um, Hamilton, if you scroll down, one proposed solution that Yarvin himself came up with, and, and this is not the only one, right? Like, again, you can, I, I want to stress this to people that are listening. You can understand what the cathedral is and not be a neo-reactionary. Mm -hmm. That's a huge, that, that's a very important thing. Yeah. Because there's, you know, the, the, the proposals for some of these people range from everything from, uh, you know, range from everything from, you know, we need to establish a Holy Roman Empire in the United States yeah, yeah, to, yeah. I mean, it's it's all over the place. I mean, it's everything from we need a military dictatorship to we need a monarchy to we just need to get rid of the 17th Amendment and yeah. everything in between. So there's a broad array of of proposed solutions. The point is, is that you don't need to be a neo-reactionary in order to understand what the cathedral is, in order to be red-pilled, in order to, yeah. to grasp these concepts and why they're incredibly important. Because once you do, you understand that the problem is more than just the next election cycle. You can vote for Donald Trump all you want, but Donald Trump will go into the White House and that's gonna that's not going to change the civil service. That's not going to change the New York Times. And that's not going to change the corporate boards of most Wall Street and Silicon Valley corporations. So one of the proposed solutions that Yarvin has come up with is a concept that he calls neocameralism. And if you scroll down Hamilton, um, or if you go to the previous article, there's also a section on neocameralism within that as well. But um, here's a here's a quote that he has. It's a bit controversial, especially oh, as yeah. Americans. It's a bit I, controversial. I think it's controversial. Like, I'm not a big fan. Um, you and I might actually have a debate on this, historically speaking. Yeah. But he says, was royalism a perfect system? It was not. But if we imagine a world in which the revolutions and civil wars of the last four centuries had never happened, it is hard not to imagine a world that is happier, wealthier, freer, more civilized, and more pleasant. Yarvin would probably call himself a a a monarchist in a weird sense. He would not necessarily kind say of like that, more of like a constitutional. Well, no, he actually would not say he's a constitutional monarchist because he would not support a system like the UK has where the monarch is a figurehead. Well, no, that I'm, not, have I'm, not, authority. I'm not, I'm not saying he, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you there. He would, he still wants the, he would still want the, the monarch to actually have executive powers, uh, but he would want it to be l very, very limited with, you know, uh, legal constrictions on what the executive could do. So here's an example that he, but, would but let's, let's go. I mean, let's talk about like neocameralism because uh, that's okay. What we, so yeah. cameralism is, I, I'll just get into it. This article kind of explains it briefly. It says occasionally called, this is an interesting thing where I said that it's not quite monarchist because yeah. I was about to say it's, it's actually more of like a CEO shareholder yeah. style relationship. Yeah. Also referred to as joint stock feudalism. You don't even need the feudalism part in there. Yeah. Um, by some is a form of government proposed by, Yarvin, he wrote under, under the pen name Mencius Moldbug all those years ago when he was writing that blog in 2007 where he coined the term uh, red pill in a political context. But anyway, it goes on to say that it was largely inspired by the economic system of cameralism in, uh, in place under the Prussian king Frederick the Great. So neo-cameralism is a quasi-monarchical system of government. It's a framework where you would use a a system of government that more uh, follows what we have with co uh, with corporations, publicly traded corporations. So you have a, again, CEO shareholder style relationship. And it goes on to explain what that means. A corporate joint stock model that can be seen in most companies in Western countries. In short, it believes a large joint stock corporation should be chosen as rulers of a country. And the corporations, large shareholders to choose a quote monarch CEO. That's why I said that it wouldn't be a traditional monarch. Yeah. He, he's trying to think, he's trying to look forward, not necessarily backwards, well, even though he uses and, the and, term neo-reactionary. This, this is the part too, where we get into this stuff and, and people immediately try to go into their separate camps or like, 
or they just like that sounds ridiculous. Well, well here's here's again the the way I would I had a good friend of mine tell me this once when I was I was reading something I'm like this is stupid or this is dumb or what about this and he goes Nick slow down for a second and just listen with the intention of understanding what they're trying to say and why. He goes, then critique the hell out of it. But until then, like at least, at least know that what you're critiquing is a fair representation of what they believe. So Monarch CEO, let's kind of go into what that Hamilton. If you scroll down some more, um, we just, um, it's just the introduction here. Keep going. There we go. Stop. No, you've gone way too far. Sorry. Okay. Neocameralism is the idea that a sovereign state or primary corporation is not organizationally distinct from a secondary or private corporation. Thus, we can achieve good management and thus libertarian government by converting governments to the same management design that works well in today's private sector. This system can easily be associated with feudalism or corporatocracy. The sovereign power alone is able to ensure its own property rights. uh, Its might and right are inherently identical and from, yes, are, are, sorry, are absolutely identical. And from this primary identity, subordinate rights um, uh, subordinate rights to secondary property cascade down through the social hierarchy. So here's here here's a the best way that I can describe it in a um, nutshell. You do not get a vote on the operating procedures of Walmart, the corporation, yeah. unless you are a shareholder of Walmart. Just because you go and buy products from Walmart and might shop at Walmart does not mean that you get a direct vote on the board for who the CEO is, what type of merchandise they carry, what brands they're going to they're going to use, what type of logo they're going to use, what font is it, where the stores are going to be located, who they're going to contract with for distribution, yeah. all of those type of things, right? You don't get a vote as a consumer of Walmart on how those things work. You only get a vote if you're a shareholder, if you have skin in the game. If you have something to lose, if the company goes bankrupt because you are invested in the company and the same thought process, Yarvin will apply to governments. He will say, unless you have skin in the game, unless you're risking something, if unless you're a net taxpayer, for example, you should not get a vote on how the government operates if you're just simply consuming the welfare state without actually producing anything for the government. If governments are supposed to guarantee and ensure property rights, it should be the people who have something to lose if those property rights are violated. They get to decide how the government operates. So one thought process that his um, colleague Nick Land came up with, Nick Land being the other chief writer of Neo Reactionary Thought, which is quite funny because Nick Land used to be a college professor who was a Marxist when he yeah. was a college professor. Yeah. There, the interesting story there was is that Land, like many Marxists, concluded oh, Marx was wrong. I, I know, it's funny how <laughs> Marxists do that. And he, he came to the thought process this is actually relevant to this he came to the thought process that um marx was wrong and you actually need to accelerate capitalism in order to to get rid of it again he was a marxist operating within left-wing thought he he wanted to achieve a communist utopia at the time and he thought the way to do it was actually to accelerate capitalism and um and so this accelerationist model led land to investigate capitalism a a little bit more and what he concluded was Eventually, he came to the very controversial position, contrary to many other Marxists and leftists that he was um, talking to, that 
capitalism actually produces technological growth. And mm-hmm. so then he came to the conclusion that you cannot separate technological growth from property rights and capitalism. And so then suddenly he went from being, we need to accelerate capitalism to overthrow it and achieve, you know, the whole communist utopia yeah. to we need to accelerate capitalism because it's actually a good thing <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it produces technological progress. And so yeah. that he became like a hyper capitalist. But the funny thing is, is that if you actually read his writings, I've read his writings, I've read the dark enlightenment, which is this, this treatise that he came up with where he encapsulates many of these thought processes. If you read his writings, it's still, you can tell that it's coming from a guy who came from the left, that came from a Marxist tradition, even though he no longer adheres to traditional communist Marxist philosophies. He's very far right economically now, but it's weird because he still operates within this almost Marxist framework. And one of the things that he came up with is this concept of um, no voice or limited voice, but free absolute exit. Yeah. And so the beginning of his essay, The Dark Enlightenment, it's titled The New Reactionaries and Libertarians Head for the Exit. And what he means by that is, is that these people want to get away from liberal democracy because they view it as a as an attack on freedom. He actually mm-hmm. quoted Peter Thiel in that he thinks that democracy and freedom are not just not synonymous. They're actually at odds with each other. And so. Land came up with something similar to neocameralism where he said you should have almost like a city-state type system like his ideal form of government would be Singapore for example mm-hmm. you should have like a city-state type system where unless you're again a shareholder of that system and you get to participate in selecting who the monarch CEO is who then runs this the, the city-state like a business would and again that power is very formalized yeah. everybody knows that that Tim Cook Tim Apple everybody yeah. knows that that that, that Tim Cook has formal power at Apple. It's yeah. not the managerial class. It's not the cathedral. It's it, Tim Cook is the CEO. Yeah, he gets to decide things. Yeah, he's still responsible to the board, but yeah. he gets to decide things. Power is formalized in a CEO corporate style structure. Power is not formalized in a democracy. We think that the president has power, but the president actually does not have power. The cathedral has power and the and what? the civil service has power. So a neocameral- I, I, I would say the president still has power. He doesn't have the power that people, or he or she doesn't have the power that people think they do. Fair point. Yeah. But a, a neocameral- no voice or limited voice free exit tiles, um, type system would formalize that power in the sense that Power is now in the hands of the monarch CEO who's responsible to the shareholders to deliver good government and thus protect property rights and enshrine some of these libertarian principles that we believe in. But the people that actually get to vote on who the monarch CEO is, that get to participate in the making of the laws, who get to participate in the political process, basically the most controversial thing from this is they do not believe in universal suffrage. Yeah. That is the fundamental thing that these new reactionaries believe is they do not believe in well, fundamental let's, let's, in let's, universal so, suffrage. So let's encapsulate that first. So what we're essentially saying is that if, if you look at the called neocameralism, right, there's still, there's still essentially an executive branch. There's still, um, that's your CEO or your monarch or whatever it is. You, you still have like a, you sh- shareholders, right? There's still, there's still the ability to check power of the executive branch. But when it comes to, um, the state itself, it, it, I mean, in some ways it resembles what people now look back on as like, Oh, this is the, the horrible patriarchy where only landowners or only these people. And, and it's interesting because more people are going back and actually looking at that and saying, well, okay, no, this wasn't something where like the greedy rich people were, I mean, some of them probably were, but it, this wasn't just explained by greedy rich people wanting to protect their privilege. It was actually a, an honest understanding on, on some level, an honest understanding of the fact that if you can take from the system without having to contribute to the system, 
Well, then we're incentivizing as many people getting in the taking bracket as opposed to the contributing bracket, and it's going to collapse. It's not going to work. And so this idea that I, I can be in a position where I essentially pay no taxes because the amount of money I get from, you know, welfare, or from housing or from whatever else, this, the amount of money I get puts me in a position where I'm a net beneficiary of this, this state and, and I owe my state, I owe the state nothing in return. Um, and I'm not an owner. I'm not an owner either. Right. This is the whole tragedy of the commons of, on what happens, you know, how people treat stuff they own versus how people treat stuff they don't own. And then you have another class of, of people where they may pay some taxes, but the amount of subsidies they get from the government. This is where we talk about corporate welfare. The amount of subsidies or the regulatory capture they get from the government far outweighs anything they pay in taxes. They also are net takers from the overall system. Those are the, those are the groups which will collapse the system eventually. It, it can't stand up on the weight because the number of people that are actually, you know, operating the way they're supposed to and contributing in will eventually get overwhelmed. And at some point you've got to look at it as like, this doesn't make it. What sense does it make for me to continue to put my head down, work hard, accomplish this when all of a sudden my tax bill keeps going up, the regulatory environment keeps changing where I can't keep up with it. And, and, and if I would just stop, if I would just give up and go into this other category, well, now I, I get to be a beneficiary without actually, you know, doing the same amount of work. It is a perverse incentive structure. And what they're trying to do is address the perverse, excuse me, the perverse incentive structure. And uh, Torino, thank you for the super chat. He goes, voters, we want honest politicians. Honest politicians tells the hard truth. Voters get angry lying politicians that offer free stuff and lies to their teeth and they gets voted in a repeat cycle. And in this, I would say this does happen until as Margaret Thatcher so eloquently put it until you run out of other people's money. And, and that's the part where you have a, a real, a real problem. A real well, if crisis you look at Zimbabwe, society. it actually continues to happen even, even after you run it. out of other people's money. Mer that Merrick Zelensky said, if bread lines do not scare you, how about coffee lines? When your two local grandmas try to use you as a tool to get one more bag of coffee while you scream, not knowing that what is going on by, because you're a six year old kid, happy me. Grandma was a Chad. <laughs> so I'm, I'm taking, he actually grew up in a country where there were, lines for this stuff and they used like the distraction of a screaming child in order to get like an extra bag of company. I mean, it's a funny story, but it's kind of a sad reality. So again, let's sum up what, what neocameralism is, what, what Yarvin is suggesting is we, we would still have a system of government. Uh, you would still have like a CEO type individual that would have power to do things, but everyone would know that they were responsible they make the decision. They're responsible. They can't blame it on a bureaucracy. They can't, they have that. Then you have the shareholders. The shareholders also have a check on power with the executive. But then when it comes to things like the distribution of services and things like that, you don't get to, you, you still can live in the society. You can even flourish in the society, but if you're not contributing to the society, you have no right to do opine on the direction of the society. Yes. And this is, uh, I'll give a popular culture example of this. If you've ever read the book, Starship Troopers. Notice I didn't say see the movie. The movie was crap. But if you ever read the book, Starship Troopers, again, Robert Heinlein got, got also, oh, he's a proto-fascist because there was a military component to it. Um, 
I will just say a proper understanding of Starship Troopers was you had a society where you had a government much like our government. You still had a president, you still had a Congress, you still, or, or some facsimile of that. The difference was is that if you served in the military, you could vote and you were considered a citizen. If you didn't serve in the military at any point in your life, then you were a civilian. Now, what was fascinating about this book was you know, the, the, the popular narrative would be like, oh, well, then, of course, everybody wanted to serve in the military to be a citizen. No, most people didn't because you could, you could be fabulously wealthy. You could, you know, do everything you wanted as a civilian and you didn't have to assume the danger because they were actually fighting a very, very bloody and brutal war by being a citizen. But the idea was, is that was Robert Heinlein's idea of a, a citizen takes responsibility for the security of the state. A civilian does not. Therefore, a citizen gets to vote and a civilian does not. This was also some of the reasoning that was used behind the idea when they talked about male suffrage. This wasn't just being mean to women, although there were certain people that did, right? Part of it was also about women couldn't be drafted to go to war. Men could be drafted to go to war. So it was this concept of you have some obligation, and because you have that obligation, you get some say in the governance all right, but if you create a society where you can have say in the governance without any obligation, it creates a perverse incentive structure. And so this is a way that they try to deal with it. Do you want to talk about like Hoppe? Um, yeah. So, Hoppe so, Ianism um, or whatever. Hans Hermann Hoppe is somewhat associated with this. He would not call himself a neo-reactionary, but he's he's brought up in this as well. And in part because of the neocameral model or the, the city state almost, you know, CEO monarchs type relationship, because Hoppe would say that covenant communities, intentional communities, dare I say it, yeah. is the ideal form of government outside of a purely anarcho-capitalist society. And what Hoppe means by that is something similar to neocameralism, where it's it's a, a community of people get together voluntarily in the form of government and the way that you prevent us descent, you know, degenerating into again the clown world that we're currently living in, where yeah. we're being told that we need to to you know gender affirm people that want to chop kids' genitals off, right? Like like the way that you do that is through ostracism. You use the whole right to association to its fullest extent. So he would say, he had a, a line in one of his books where he was like, you know. Ultimately, you might need to physically remove, so to speak, leftists and communists <laughs> yeah. and progressives. People got really upset about and that. And then that turned into the Pinochet helicopter memes from people yeah. on the internet. Although Hoppe himself would say that he doesn't endorse throwing socialists out, out of helicopters. It just became a meme that people on the internet ran with. But um, what he means by that is, is that you use ostracism. You say, no, this, this city-state, for example, we do not tolerate left-wing progressivism. You can go to San Francisco for that, yeah. but this is this is not it. You will not have political power if you live here and you try to advocate for seizing the means of production. Yeah, we do not tolerate that. And I, I, again, if you if you here's here, I'm I'm going to bring up Bastiat here for example. There's a there's a line in the law where Bastiat describes the state of democracy in France at the time in 1850. And he brings up a debate. He doesn't take a side in the debate, but he brings up a debate at the time on women's suffrage. Yeah. And he uses this as an example to describe the dangers of political power and democracy taken to its fullest extent. He does not endorse you know, denying women the right to vote. Yeah. He, People try to say he believes that. And that's, he he that's simply accurate. brings up the debate that was happening at the time. And he says the reason why at the moment women don't have the right to vote is because the people who have political power, society at the time, who, men who had political power came to the conclusion at the time that women are not capable of exercising sound judgment. And then he goes on to say, regardless of whether or not you believe that is true, 
we know that, for example, we would not be giving five-year-olds the right to vote. Yeah. And the reason that we don't is because we don't think they exercise sound judgment. So what we conclude there is that not everybody should have the right to vote because not everybody will make a sound judgment. When you vote, you're not just making a decision that impacts you. You're making a decision that impacts the nation. Mm-hmm. And so... It is not in the interest of the nation to grant anybody who just happens to live within the borders of the nation. This is why we don't give illegal immigrants the, the right to vote. And just because you happen to live within the bounds of the nation does not mean that you should have a, a decision when it comes to the making of the, the laws of the nation. We need rational decision makers to make those laws. Here's an example to use a CEO uh, you know, corporation style thing. Just because I go and shop, I don't actually shop at Walmart, but if I, if I were to shop at Walmart, that doesn't mean that I should get to get a decision on what Walmart, how Walmart should operate. Yeah. I should get a decision on whether or not I want to shop at Walmart. Yeah. Again, this gets into free exit, right? No voice or limited voice, but free exit. I should be able to vote with my feet and vote with my dollars on whether or not I want to shop at Walmart. But just because I am a shopper at Walmart does not confer special political power or corporate power to me to decide how the board operates, how the company is going to be structured. I can choose not to participate in the company, but I don't just automatically get a vote within the company just because I'm purchasing their stuff. Well, likewise, I shouldn't just automatically be given a vote and the making of political laws in this country just because I live within its borders and especially just because I consume the welfare. I'm not actually a welfare consumer, but that gets to the problem that that so many people have warned us about, so many of our founding fathers have warned us about, about democracy, that you cannot have a democratic system in place where you have created incentive structure for a majority of the people to vote to pillage the treasury because now you've created a political incentive for demagogues to come along and promise people other people's goods. And all that you have at that point is legalized theft. This is what what, what Bastiat gets to in the law, the whole no legal plunder. That is his, his maxim that he declares yeah. over and over again in that book, that when you create a political system that simply incentivizes people to vote for somebody to steal other people's stuff, you've created a system of legalized plunder, which as Nick Land will describe, will never really lead to the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Well, and I would say for anybody too, on our 90 day challenge on our community chat, if you haven't read Bastiat's The Law yet, only about 80 pages, I highly recommend it because we bring it up a lot in this um, a lot in this podcast so so here's what again I think that's I think you summed it up really well I mean what, what this comes down to is we, we are trying to like so let's say um, you know again you you still value democratic processes I value democratic processes that doesn't mean that I I, I believe that they are completely flawless and because you would have to be so horribly ignorant of history to come to the conclusion that, well, as long as the majority decided so, I guess it's just and noble and good and will produce great outcomes. No, that's that's not the case. So so how do you come up with mitigating circumstances to make sure that those excesses don't take place? And again, the, the neocameralism when one is like, imagine a larger nation, but the incentive structures with respect to voting and policymaking is very different. The the summary, I would say, of um, the, the Hoppe approach is more of kind of like the, what he, when he says covenant community, think of Think of, um, let's use the states as an example. Think of the states operated in such a way to where, okay, we, we all still live in America, but you have individual states, and those states are very, very 
um, closely aligned with a particular political ideology. So instead of, you know, Florida, you're living in free market land. And instead of California, you're living in, you know, socialist utopia land or whatever it is. And the idea would be is that if you move to Florida, if you move to free market land, it's because you want to live in free market land, not because you want the benefits of free market land. And then you're going to eventually change it into socialist utopia land because you already have a land. It's called California. Go to that land. Right. And, and people look at that like, oh, so you're just telling people if you don't like it, leave. Well, what's what's the other option here? If you don't like it, change it. Okay, well, what about the people that don't want it to be changed? And, and their response is, well, as long as it's democratically decided, it's fine. Except that we've just shown that you can actually create very, very perverse incentives that will destroy the very thing that made the place desirable in the first place. So his idea really stems around this, this thing where it's like you have, again, more limited say because there's certain precepts that that area, that, that culture is going to work within that are not going to change. Right, we're not going to have a democratic vote on whether or not we have free markets. We're not going to have a democratic vote on whether or not we have property rights. That, that that's not a thing in Hoppe land. Now, if you want to go live in Karl Marx land, you are free to do it. Right? But you don't get to move from Karl Marx land into Hoppe land and then make it Karl Marx land. That's that's all it is. So this idea where he goes, you know, people would have to be, you know, removed. I, I think it's so funny when leftists get upset about this. It's like, really? Have you seen how communist countries that I've I've brought up this point before, and this is Hear me out. If you want to be a full-blown anarcho-communist, which is to say that you want to be a communist, but you, you don't want to force anybody else to join, great. In America, you can do that. You can go get some property with all of your friends. You can set up economic systems within that thing where you share all of the property in common. The workers can own the companies that you develop within this area. You can do all of that. You can do all of that. And someone like me is not going to stop you. In fact, I'll even try to lower your taxes. Right now, here's the question. If I live in a communist country and I wanted to be a capitalist, I wanted to go out and I wanted to have a little area that I bought that I owned with all my capitalist friends. And we got to set up companies where we operated off of capitalist systems and voluntary exchange and private property rights. What would the communist government do to me? They put me in a gulag. So this is what Hoppe, this is kind of what to, to a lesser degree, Tim Poole was suggesting it's like this whole idea of, of living freely and coexisting with one another works provided one side is not hell bent on using the coercive power of government to force you to do things you don't want to do or forcing you more importantly, more accurately forcing you to live the way they think you should. And that is a fair critique. And that's, that's what these guys are, are trying to solve here. All right. Angel D, uh, what additional requests, if any, do you think we need for voting rights, i.e. tax contributions, civics, history, education? Here, here's the thing that I'll tell you with all of these. Um, when it gets into like civics and history education, the question always becomes who gets to decide what civics and who gets to decide what history education. Mm -hmm. This is why we used to have a poll tax. So you used to have to pay a tax to vote. The problem was is that the people that were administering it were doing it deliberately to disenfranchise certain people, namely uh, black Americans. Same thing with the uh, like civics tests. They would say, oh, you got to pass a civics test to vote. But then they'd ask stupid questions like, you know, how can many, you square a circle? Yeah, can you square a circle? <laughs> they would ask stuff where they could arbitrarily decide who got to vote and who didn't get to vote, which is why we have we have tended toward universal suffrage at a particular age. Now, stuff that would be more... Um, Stuff that would be more objective would be, are you a net taxpayer? 
which says you contribute more than you're actually receiving in like direct transfer payments from the state, right? It's really difficult to determine, okay, how much are you getting from the state in a form of like military protection or police protection or fire protection? Those would be stuff that in this scenario, you would put off to the side and you wouldn't necessarily count those. You would look at more stuff like welfare recipients. Are you getting, again, are you getting direct transfer payments from taxpayers to you? If you are, and it outweighs the amount you're paying in taxes, you wouldn't necessarily get to vote or you wouldn't get to vote on certain things like at the federal level or whatever it is. That's conceptually how that would work. The only problem that you're going to run into is then someone's going to come back and say, yes, but you're still subject to the laws that are passed. And this is why I think Hoppe and Yarvin are trying to come up with something different where you have freedom of exit because they recognize the problem of living in a society where you're subject to the rules, but you, you have, it's, it's not the same as Walmart, right? Cause I can leave Walmart. I don't go to shop at Walmart. I can shop somewhere else. But what happens when it's the state and you have to live by the rules, you have to live by the laws. And now those laws are being created by people that now might have a perverse incentive to come after you. And that's, that's the problem with it. That's why coming up with any sort of criteria like this doesn't necessarily solve the problem. In many cases, it creates new ones. I, I wanna, I, I've actually got a, a direct quote from Hoppe um, that I want to read off. And then I've got um, something from, from Nick Land, actually, that I think really encapsulates the problem and a potential solution to it yeah. when it comes to the whole perverse incentives that exist within democratic structures. Hoppe says... He's using this as an example. He's not, he's not even not endorsing it, but he's using it as an example. He says, as a hereditary monopolist, a king regards the territory and the people under his rule as his personal property and engages in the monopolistic exploitation of this property. When he says exploitation, he doesn't mean enslave them. He means yeah. he, he means exploitation in the sense that you use it productively. Yeah. Um, under democracy. Monopoly and monopolistic exploitation do not disappear. That's a hugely important yeah. thing. People think that when you abolish the monarchy, it disappears. I want to use, for example, that we revolted against the United Kingdom. We revolted against the King of England over what? A 3% tax, I think is what yeah. it was. Yeah. Ask yourself today, <laughs> would the founding fathers have penned the Declaration of Independence if they saw the state of our society and nation today? Versus the one that they were living under in 1776. I would actually put to you that they might not have actually signed that declaration if they looked at where we are today versus, again, revolting over a 3% tax against a monarchy that they were actually hesitant to leave. Yeah. People forget this. They were not died in the world Republicans at the start versus the monolith, the federal monolith that we now live under today. I, in some ways, they would probably look at King George II and be like, this guy's a libertarian. Yeah. Compared to, to <laughs> compared to Joe Biden. But anyway, they go Hoppe far. goes on to say, I was saying that joke, <laughs> but like Hoppe goes on to say that under democracy, monopoly and monopolistic exploitation do not disappear. That's hugely important. Rather, what happens is this. Instead of a king and a nobility who regard the country as their private property, a temporary and interchangeable caretaker is put in monopolistic charge of the country. The caretaker does not own the country. But as long as he is in office, he is permitted to use it and his pro um, to use it to his and his protege's advantage. He owns its current use, but not its capital stock. This does not eliminate exploitation. 
To the contrary, it makes exploitation less calculating and carried out with little to no regard to the capital stock. Exploitation becomes short-sighted and capital consumption will be systematically promoted. And Land goes on to say, this is this is an incredibly important paragraph. This is probably one of the best things that Nick Land has ever written. This paragraph at the, in the beginning of his Dark Enlightenment essay where he says, Political agents invested with transient authority by, by multi-party democratic systems have an overwhelming and demonstrably, uh, demonstrably irresistible incentive to plunder society with the greatest possible um, rapidness and comprehensiveness. Anything they, they neglect, it's incredible that a former Marxist is writing this. Yeah, it is. Anything they neglect to steal or to leave on the table is likely to be inherited by political successors who are not only unconnected, but actually opposed and who can therefore be expected to utilize all available resources to the detriment of their foes. So what he's referring to there yeah. is when you're in office, you have an incentive to just pillage the treasury as fast as you possibly can, because the other side might get in, in the next yeah. election. You have no it's incentive for long-term problem. Yeah. You have no incentive for, for what is it called? Long time preferences yeah. to build something to, you know, to leave to successors. And then he goes on to say, Whoever is left behind becomes a weapon or um, whatever is left behind becomes a weapon in your enemy's hands. Best then to destroy what cannot be stolen from the perspective of a democratic politician. Any type of social good that is neither directly appropriable or attributable um, or, or, or attributed to partisan policy is sheer waste and counts for nothing. Whilst even the most grievous um, social misfortune, as long as it can be assigned to a prior administration or postponed into a subsequent one, think of Donald Trump with the money printing in 2020. Yeah. It works both ways. Yeah, it does. Or to a subsequent, uh, subsequent one, figures in rational calculations as an obvious blessing. The long-range techno-economic um, improvements and associated accumulation of cultural capital that, con, uh, that, that constituted social progress in its old Whig sense are in nobody's political interest. Once democracy flourishes, they face the immediate threat of extinction. It's incredible well, that a former Marxist wrote that. No, it, it is because the, the, the sum up is actually pretty simple. Because you don't actually own the stuff that you're distributing or you're taking or that you're using, the moment you have access and control over it, use as much of it as you possibly can, because if you don't, your political enemies will use it against you. Tragedy if of the things, commons. Yeah, it's tragedy of the commons. If things work out well, great. You get to take control and you get to continue to, to raid the treasury. If things don't work out, you can blame it on other people. Now, take a look at the political history of the United States, especially over the last several decades, and tell me that ha that doesn't appear to be the incentive structure. This is what Bastiat warned us about. Yeah, with it, legalized it was, plunder. And, and especially, especially with this whole idea of the fiat currency and just being able to print money. We, we, have, we have seen Republican administrations and Democrat administrations engaging in what anybody could tell you it is, is very self-destructive monetary and fiscal policy. But why do they do it? Because it is rewarded by the voters. That's why. And this is the part where Thomas Sowell has his, his quote where he goes, the fact that, you know, so many successful politicians are such shameless liars is not just a reflection on them. It is also a reflection on us. When people expect the impossible, only liars will satisfy. And, and this is the, this is the perverse incentive rooted into democracy 
And it's what our founders attempted to create mitigations for, right? Because we, we recognize, look, I, I'm sorry, but when I, when I look at what Nick Land and what these other guys are saying with respect to monarchy, I, I can still look at plenty of examples within history where, where monarchy or imperial Rome or whatever else created just as many, if in many cases, not worse problems. That's why I'm, I, I still remain skeptical, highly skeptical of that. What, what I don't remain skeptical of, or, or what, I, what I still think was an excellent proposition was what the founders originally put in place in the United States, because you had the competing powers at the federal level between the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature. But then you also had competing powers between the states and the federal. And now the argument is, is that, okay, but it still didn't prevent where we're at from happening. And I uh, want to thank... Um, Want to thank Tam for the um, the super chat. How come the political system in America is so polarizing? You are either left or right, and you and you wear it on your sleeves. It feels more like a personality. Can you elaborate why it's like this? Yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to give you my opinion on it. I won't say that my opinion is the correct one, but I think what part of it comes down to is that in in many other countries um, that I've visited. What I found is that there there tends to be a lot more, um, this is not every country, okay, but a lot of the ones I visited, especially in Europe, there tends to be a lot more general consensus that, of course, the government is going to run healthcare, and of course, the government is going to run education, and of course, the government is going to have an elaborate welfare state. Basically, what you have is a lot of people that seem to be, in my opinion, very, very comfortable with um, a degree of government intervention into their lives that I would argue most Americans are, are have a very, very different approach to. So I think for most of U.S. history, Americans were far more skeptical of centralized government power, and that's starting to change in the United States. And because that's starting to change, especially within areas like academia, you're also starting to see this, this division, I think, between younger populations that have, have grown up in an academia and an arts and entertainment world that envision a much larger role for government compared with you know maybe people my age, 44 and, and older, that we grew up with a lot more skepticism of government power. And so this, this whole level left-right paradigm um, at, a, at a basic philosophical level is rooted in this idea of where do we see the direction of the, the country? And it's very, very high stakes because people like me see it as, well, if they get control of healthcare, they've already got control of education. If they get control of healthcare and if they get control of, of much else within the economy, we're done. The, the vision of America that I have is, is over. It doesn't exist anymore. And so that's why I'm so adamant about it. They're also adamant about it because they see these things as inherent moral goods and that, of course, the government should do these things. And the fact that I'm standing in the way of them doing it makes me a bad guy. And so that, that creates a very high stakes relationship. I think you add on top of that a whole host of other cultural considerations within the United States around things like gun rights, around things like abortion, around things like um, we're, we're, we're still a much more religious society when you look at most of what you would call uh, Western nations. All of those things also factor into play combined with the fact that we do have a federalist system. So if you're living in a place in, in Europe or if you're living in a country that has more of a national style government, it's not like you move states and things change. That, that doesn't happen. Well, in the United States, you, you are going to experience something that could be significantly different. If you live in San Francisco, California versus living in, in, in rural um, Tennessee, th those are like, that's like night and day. And so there is the ability to to transfer and, and those cultural ties that develop. Um, and, and again, I don't want to be overly broad here. Obviously, if you go to a place like Germany, um, you, you have very, very distinct cultural trends within different parts of Germany. I'm not denying that. Uh, but I do think that they've become more pronounced within the United States in some degrees because of uh, we, we've had a lot of immigration in the United States. And I mean, from our from the beginning, 
And that also brought certain cultural traits that have developed over, you know, decades and at this point, even hundreds of years. And so that's, that would be my explanation for it. I don't know if Christian's got a, a drastically different one than that. I, I would argue that democracy, like we have here, incentivizes the creation of, of these, these compete. Think about it from this standpoint. People end up voting strategically because they have to calculate how everybody else is going to vote. And so it, it incentivizes the creation of what we call the left and the right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that, that kind of gets back to the problem of democracy. I mean, there, there's so many like there's another line that I've got here because I've got his essay in front of me where he's he says something like um, this is Landigan writing that since winning elections is overwhelmingly a matter of vote buying and society's informal organs, education and media are no more resistant to bribery than the electorate. A thrifty politician is simply an incompetent politician <laughs> and the democratic variant of Darwinism quickly eliminates such misfits from the gene pool. This is a reality that the left applauds, the establishment right begrudgingly accepts and the libertarian right has ineffectively rallied against Increasingly, however, libertarians have ceased to care about whether anyone is paying attention to them. Instead, they're looking <laughs> out for something else entirely, an exit. And like, again, it's, I highly recommend this essay for anybody that wants to understand like, like, like some of these concepts about the right, but actually from a guy that doesn't originally come from the right because the, he just writes about it in such a unique way because he understands leftism so well that that he, I think, encapsulates some of the problems with democracy and why it. we need to get it out of our head that democracy is synonymous with freedom. It's not. It's actually antagonistic to freedom because what happens, Bastia has warned us about this, what happens when a majority of the people vote to take my property rights away from me, vote to pillage the treasury, vote to print infinite amounts of money to create inflation? Inflation is always, Milton Friedman discovered, inflation is always a monetary phenomenon. If it's always a monetary phenomenon, that means it's always a government phenomenon. Yeah. And if it's always a government phenomenon, guess what? In democracies, it's a democratic phenomenon. Yeah. And so who do we have to blame for the Fed printing printing trillions of dollars and creating the inflation that we live in? We do. Yeah. Ourselves. Because we voted for the people in office who appointed the people at the Federal Reserve who flipped the money printers on. Yeah. And I, anyway, a point is, is that I, I, I have become convinced that democracy is actually the problem. It's not the solution. The solution is obviously not tyranny. You run into this problem of if democracy is the problem and you still don't want tyranny, how do you avoid it? I think that something like neocameralism is an attempt to, uh, to create an anti-democratic system that is still not instituting tyranny any more than we would say that Apple is tyranny. Yeah, well, let's. First of all, T Man says, uh, Thank you, Nick, for the answer. Keep making awesome, sarcastic shorts. More of my Swedish friends are watching your shorts and love them. Thank you very much. I will continue to do so. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is the important part is that. Um, is that a lot of the people within the neo-reactionary movement, they're, they're not anti-freedom. And this, this goes into the problem that we've discussed many times is this idea that if you're, if they have, if, if this group has a problem with democracy, then they're anti-freedom. It's like, no, that that's actually not the case. They have evaluated democracy in its modern forms and determined that democracy is antithetical to the sort of freedom that they would like to experience. And so, again, if you want to critique them, that's fine, but properly critique them. They're not fascist. They don't want to take over. They don't want to rule everything with an iron fist. In fact, if you look at them, the, the sort of like social 
and economic policies that they would institute are incredibly free and open, incredibly free and open. They don't want to tell you how to live your individual life. They just are adamant that if you're the sort of person that believes that the government should, you know, do X, Y, and Z, you don't, they don't want you there, right? They don't, you go over there. That's fine. They don't want to tell you what to do in your space. Don't tell them what to do in their space. That's, that's the difference. Let's, let's get onto this final part that we need to do with respect to the Leviathan, because that's a term that we use and will continue to use. I, I want to break this down because Christian, Christian is really, I, I think done a good job on, on honing this in. And we were talking about this yesterday. We, we look at the Leviathan as it's the arts and entertainment, it's media, it's academia. And academia is also government administered education. It's not just, you know, the, the higher ed it's corporations and banking, and then it's government. And then some of that's elected, but it's also the bureaucracy within government. And, and when we, when we talk about that, when we talk about this superstructure, right, that is the Leviathan, and that's some, something of a, a throwback to Hobbes. Um, it's this idea that we're not just talking about a government entity and we're not just talking about, you know, a, a private sector entity because the cathedral represents kind of the media and, um, and academia, we're, we're, we're taking a look at it, all of it. And so the Leviathan, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it is, is best described as something of an ideological movement, right? Because it's not one guy controlling all the strings. It's, it's not organic. Just, it's not just Charles Schwab at the WEF. The WEF is a part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, and, but the W we don't claim that the WEF is controlling what Harvard does. The WEF they is just, the pinky toe of the Leviathan. Yeah, they just agree. <laughs> they, they agree. And it's all these people in positions of power and influence that agree on a particular thing. And what is the particular thing they tend to agree on? And I would argue it's the greater centralization of government power in order to manage society, manage the economy, manage the environment, right? The, the, these are the sort of, these are the sort of people that generally believe that if there is a problem or a challenge, the best way to address it is through some form of state action. Now, what are the problems? This is the other part that's important. What are the problems that they're trying to address? Well, that's where you get into a much more confusing patchwork of ideas, but there seems to be, again, collaboration. So for instance, if you're talking to somebody at the sociology department at Cal Berkeley, the biggest problem they're trying to solve is transgenocide. Right. If, if you're if you're talking to Greta Thunberg, it's environmental policy. If you're talking to somebody else, it, it may be, you know, some other form of LGBTQ rights. If you're talking to this person over here, it's it's the evil exploitation of capitalism. So the question is, is why do these people that have identified different problems and prioritized these different problems all seem to still move in the same direction? And I would argue it's because all of them agree on the mechanism that you actually solve it. And that's the concentration of political power. And they realize they can't do it as individual groups. They have to work in conjunction with one another. Now, I believe that if they ever got their way, if they ever totally got rid of people like me, they would turn on each other in a heartbeat because they always have to have a revolution. There's a reason why when, when they won the revolution in Cuba, they still talked about the revolution because the revolution is never ending. They have to have an enemy. They have to have a bad guy that they're going after because when, you're, when your goal is utopia, you're never going to achieve it. So when we look at these things and we ask ourselves, okay, we want to preserve liberty. I still believe the democratic processes play a role in that. I'm, I'm very conscious of you know, the perverse incentives in there, and I think they need to be mitigated, but I still believe that democratic processes play a role in that. How do we fight the Leviathan, right? Or, or the, you know, again, which the Leviathan is not arts and entertainment. It's not, the Leviathan is the movement within these structures, this ideological movement within these structures. So how do we fight and compete in these things while 
preserving liberty. Yeah, it's important to note the, the Leviathan is not arts and entertainment. It's our current arts yeah. and entertainment. There will always be arts and entertainment, but yeah. you know, I, I would argue that you know, classical architecture is the solution, and the garbage postmodernist architecture that they're putting out is an example of the architectural side of the art. Yeah, you know, of the Leviathan. It's this. It's the crappy stuff out there, and so. Here's, here, I've said this repeatedly over time in so many podcasts. This is actually directly tied with with many of the stuff that we've talked about today with with the whole neo-reactionary movement and, and the cathedral, the problems with it, the problems with democracy as well, and some of the proposed solutions that these people put forward like neocameralism. And honestly, it starts with, Yarvin actually came up with a term. He's like, the, the, the goal, he doesn't literally say this, but he, he basically says that the, the goal is not to take back the board of Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's never going to happen. The, the the goal is to make Berkeley unpopular and uncool. Yeah. And make people not want to go to Berkeley. The, the, the goal is not to take over the university. The goal is to create an antiversity, as I think is, is what he calls it. Well, it's basically to create counter... I've said this before, create counter institutions. So, but here's... Okay, but here's the thing that... Here's the thing that I think kind of bothers people when we say that. It's like, it's like, go make your own Google. Like, oh, okay, I'll get started on that in my garage right, right, right now. And and that's not what we're saying. I I came up with I came up with kind of a three tiered system as I look at, um, as I look at institutions within one of those categories. So, as I look at institutions within like the arts and entertainment, there's everything from Disney to Angel Studios to YouTube. This is a forum of arts and entertainment. Right, I would argue it could also be a form of education, but we'll get to that in a second. So if I if I'm looking at that, um, the question becomes: To your point, I, when I look at an institution, I ask myself this question: Excuse me, is it completely captured? Is it partially captured, or is it openly competitive? Right. So when I look at Disney, I think that is for me. And and well, um, actually, let me back up. So completely captured, you replace it or you come up with some sort of alternative or competitive system to it because you ain't, you ain't going to win that one. You're just not right. You, to your point, you're not going to, you're not going to work yourself up the, the power structure within Cal Berkeley to one day be a conservative Dean of, of Cal Berkeley. That's not happening, not happening. And, and the more time and resources you spend trying to do that, the more you are wasting limited time and resources. So don't bother. So to, to the people that always ask us, what can we do about it? That's the first thing. Identify whatever it is that's important to you within your sphere and look at that institution or whatever it might be. If it's completely captured and you're doing, oh, I'm going to change it from within, you're probably not. Now, if it's partially captured, that's something that you can potentially compete in or you come up with an alternative. And if it's openly competitive, I would say that's also something that you that, that may be worth your time and resources to compete. So the point is, I'm not telling you to go out and come up with your own alternative to Disney. I'm saying go find the people that have already set up an alternative. So you have Disney, you have Angel Studios, and then you also have like the, the sort of entertainment that we're providing right now. Mm-hmm. Like, where are you spending your time and money? If you're someone that actually engages in this sort of environment, where are you using your talents? We, we had, a, we had a, a, a young woman a while back that we talked about using your talents in other areas. Like we don't need everybody to run for office. We, we need people to, especially in arts and entertainment. And she, she showed us, we actually showed it on, on uh, the show. This, this kind of like meme thing that she did. I, I, meme is, is 
I'm was not it a drawing. It was a drawing. I'm not doing it service by calling it a meme, but it was, it was more of like almost like a comic that she drew. And it was very, it was very bright. It was very, you know, it was clever and it was very well done. So if you're looking at arts and entertainment, that's the, as a consumer of arts and entertainment, where are you spending your time and money? If you're someone that actually has skills within a particular area, okay, who are you allowing to utilize those skills? And, and wh where are you choosing to be beneficial through those skills? So I look at like Disney as Disney's captured. I, I would love to think that we could save Disney and, and maybe one day we could when they feel enough pain, but I, I don't, you know, financial pain is what I mean. The by free that. market has to work itself out. You shouldn't yeah. just, just as governments should not be bailing out failing yeah. corporations with taxpayer money, conservatives and libertarians, anybody on the right should not be bailing out woke corporations just because of nostalgia from the fact that, well, they made good movies in the nineties. Yeah. It's it, I, I think it's as simple as that. I loved Disney movies in the nineties when I was a kid, but and I love Star Wars. I, I in fact, there, there was a there was a tweet from uh, somebody last night, and I replied to it, and um, that they were talking about the uh, um, Ahsoka uh, series that came out. Oh my gosh! And yeah. and Anakin shows up. He, he has like a, a cameo there, and and he was complaining about you know how like it it just doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't feel powerful anymore. And I, I replied, and I was like, there was once a point in time when seeing that face, Anakin Skywalker on screen, yeah. meant something. Yeah. Not anymore. Star yeah. Wars has been dead for years, yeah. and as much as it sucks to fall out of love with a franchise that defined large parts of your childhood, it doesn't suck as much as the garbage that Disney has been putting out yeah. for like four or five years. And so ultimately, again, I'm going to say this again, just because just just like governments should not be bailing out corporations with taxpayer money that make terrible decisions we as consumers should not be bailing out in the form of giving our attention and our time and our in you know our our share of the marketplace we should not be bailing out terrible corporations that are operating within the the confines of the leviathan pushing us to the left they're the enemy at that point if disney decides tomorrow to not be the enemy anymore yeah. and make good content and stop pushing wokeism i'd be happy to give them my service but as long as they're going to partake in helping the leviathan swim to the left mm -hmm. i'm going to treat them as the enemy yeah and well and, it, and i will say this it will not be good enough for disney to kind of quietly move back to normal disney will have to actually make a significant shift i want to i want to hit this one super chat here real quick from uh, imp reb thank you very much for the super chat i'm going to push back that there isn't central string polar COVID and other events made me pretty convinced that there is a they and they smartly use these crafted structures to effectively control society so here's what i would say i had somebody ask me once on do you think it's centralized? Do you think it's organic? And I, and I, here's what I'll say. I don't think it's either, or I don't think it's purely organic. Obviously organic movements generally have leaders at, at different stages of, of power and whatnot. Um, but the idea that, that there's one central person that can kind of control everything. I, I just, I don't think that's, or one central organization or one central government or one central group of people that part I don't buy. I, I think that and not only that, but I think it misdiagnoses the problems in a potentially dangerous way because what it does is it allows us to say, well, if we could only change that, then everything would be fixed. And and let me put it this way. If you were the evil Bond villain, right? Like if you were Dr. No and you were running Spectre and you wanted to you know, control the world, you wouldn't do it by keeping just a dark, shadowy organization that never did. You would try to find ways to influence other elements of society so that – 
you didn't have to be in the deep shadows, right? You would, you would want to be in a position to where the, the norms that you envision for society have actually become the norms which govern society. And so while I do think that there have been integral figures within like the Frankfurt School, within some of the donor classes, within some of um, you know, the WEF and Charles Schwab, I do think that's an example of, of kind of what we're talking about to varying degrees. I don't want to create the notion or the idea that if you just take down this, if you just take down Spectre, right, to use the James Bond example, well, then we're all good. We, we all go back to being happy and wonderful again. I don't think that's true. I, I, think, we, I think we have to be fighting on, on a much broader front when it comes to, you know, arguing for our version of the culture that we think is valuable. So let, let's, let's do this real quick on the three category, right? Completely captured, partially captured, openly competitive arts and entertainment category. I think Disney is completely captured. I wouldn't even try angel studios. I, I think angel studios is not yeah. only openly competitive. I think it's on our side. So if I'm looking to consume entertainment, maybe I'm looking at angel studios first. If I'm someone that has talent, you know, again, people will go and they will watch where the talent goes to. One of the reasons why there's been a huge writer strike and and uh, Screen Actors Guild strike, and nobody cares, is because the writing sucked. Yeah, I, I love hearing all these writers like we're not being properly treated by the streaming services. Maybe you are, and maybe you're not. But guess what? I don't particularly care at this point because I hate your product. Yeah. You have done such a horrible job destroying all of my childhood, like, you know, entertainment heroes that I don't care if you go on strike. Now, I'm sure there's some people that are actually good. I don't know. But the point is, is the vast majority of the stuff I've seen in Hollywood sucks, so I don't care. Can I make a quick point? Yeah. Um, Angel Studios, what's interesting there is they aren't just competing against, you know, Disney. They're also kind of taking on Netflix as well by mm -hmm. providing similar product. But I think for people that have skills and have come to the conclusion that an institution is not something that we can fix and are thinking that it needs to be replicated, sometimes that replication doesn't always have to be the exact product that this company which can't be overtaken is producing yeah so for instance you know we always have to look at the needs of the marketplace we found that people are spending less time watching movies less time watching tv where are they spending that time they're spending it on youtube rumble consuming content on social and so it may not be that we always need a direct replication we may need something that is thinking ahead for the future as well and what consumers are going to want to spend their time on in the future yeah so, so, and now they give me an idea of something I think is partially captured YouTube. I, I think rumble is obviously friendly to us. YouTube is partially captured. And, and, and if you look at their like executive board, I mean, you'd say totally captured. Yeah. The difference is this, do I still get to get on here all the time? Like daily yeah. on, on YouTube. And we actually get to talk about what we want and actually have an audience that this platform helps facilitate communication. With. I mean, the fact that we're doing a podcast on neo reactionaryism where they're right. critiquing democracy. So people will ask me, <laughs> so like, why are you on YouTube? Why are you not exclusively on one of these channels? Like, because I would only get to speak to a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the audience. And as long as I'm still able to compete in this sector, I will compete in it because I think there's some value to it. I think there's some value to it. Um, okay. Let's look at media MB, M MSNBC versus Fox versus OAN versus once again, we have ind independent bloggers now and independent um, um, media is more powerful than it has ever been yep. because MSNBC completely captured Fox pretty much. I, I think, I think pretty much They're controlled opposition. O o OAN <laughs> is obviously not captured. I would say yeah. it, it's on our, it's, it's more on the conservative side, not to say that I agree with every conclusion that comes out of somebody on OAN. And then again, you, you have the other sectors where it's, where it's rumble, where it's social media, where people are allowed to put out other information and you have a platform for more independent media. So again, 
if if MSNBC is is completely captured, Fox is partially captured, and independent media is openly competitive, then go compete in it. Go compete in it. Uh, academia, public education, and the university system. I would say that with respect to public schools, for the most part, and um, higher education, it is almost completely captured. I mean, yeah, you have your Hillsdales, you have your Grove City College, you, you have Liberty University. you have Which some will be the, at Monday. Yeah, which we, we will be at Liberty on Monday uh, talking to students there. But it, it, is, it is almost completely captured. Like the, the public education system in particular will not allow itself to not be captured because the government will run it. Now, people will say, yeah, but I can run for school board. Yeah, and yes, you can. You, it is, it's not completely captured in the sense that you as you know, more of a conservative or libertarian-minded person can't be more effective in engaging with it. But ultimately, you're still fighting against something that is so much bigger than one election cycle. So one thing that I'm going to disagree with you on, Nick, is that I actually think that when we go through all the different things that make up the Leviathan, arts and entertainment, the media, yeah. university, public education, um, uh, the, the the corporate sector and the banking sector, so like Wall Street and Silicon Valley, and then um, you know the, the, the bureaucratic state, when you look at all those things, I would actually argue that the Leviathan comprises all the things that are fully captured. So for example... You can say the press is not entirely captured. No. Yeah, but all of the major institutions, all the MSNBC, major publications York Times, that LA operate Times. within, I mean, because yeah. I, I could create a blog tomorrow that gets two people reading it and I can say I'm part of the press, right? And obviously I'm not, you know, that, that wouldn't constitute as being captured. What I, what, what I mean by the Leviathan is all the things that are captured. Yeah. So again, the New York Times being captured, Berkeley being captured, almost everything in Hollywood being captured, increasingly Wall Street also being captured. Like those are all things that are captured. And the way that you defeat the Leviathan and the way that you tear down the cathedral, because there will always be a cathedral. Mm -hmm. This is actually a critique that I have of, of, of Yarvin. There will always be a cathedral. The question is who's going to be controlling the cathedral. The, The goal of a conservative, the goal of anybody on the right should not be tear down the cathedral. That's step one. Step two should be build your own cathedral because that, <laughs> well, that's, how you, that's actually how you win. I don't think it's even step one. I think it's, it's step one is build is build alternatives. Well, yeah, yes. Uh, yeah. So, so, so step one is actually build a counter again, a counter cathedral, counter Leviathan, counter institutions yeah. alongside the existing ones. And then, attack the existing ones, make them unpopular, ostracize people that associate themselves with them. Be like, you watch this. I don't want to, I, you're not, you're not allowed in my intentional community. If you subscribe <laughs> to the New York times, like, like it's, it's stuff like that. Make them uncool. Well, so here, here's what I'll, here's what I'll say. And I, that's I, how you tear them down. Okay. I, I get that. I get that. I'm, I'm never going to be comfortable. I, like I'm, I'm fully comfortable with, with saying that, look, if someone wants to actually do me harm and take my stuff, I don't necessarily want to be associated with them. If somebody wants, again, let's just use this as an example, anarcho-communism. All right, so what does that mean? That means somebody that wants to live in a communal environment, but they don't want to force anyone to join, right? You can voluntarily join, you can voluntarily leave. I don't agree with that person. I don't think their system's going to work. I don't want to do them any harm, right? Like, and, and I don't necessarily have a problem with them or the fact that they may want to read other things or try other things. Again, as long as they're not trying to compel me to join them or force me to subsidize them, I'm okay with them engaging in their own social and economic experiment. It, it the, the, the threshold for me is when they want to force me to join or subsidize. And that's what most of these institutions like represent. So kind of going through this, I, I would, I would tell people again, if, if you want to push back against the Leviathan within your, um, within 
you know, academia, be real careful on where you're going to send your kids to school. Be real careful on where you're going to send your kids to school. Um, because they're going to get, they're going to get more intellectual interaction with wherever you send them to school than they probably are with you. And so you've got to be careful about that. And I see, I'm just going to be honest here. I see a lot of parents that will tell me, um, well, no, 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 I'm preparing my kids. We talk about it. They're going to go and it's going to be fine. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I don't think the odds are in your favor. I don't, I think the odds are in the favor of the capital on this one. Um, I don't think the odds are in your favor. I, I also think that um, another common one is like, well, we can't afford to do it. And I, and I, I feel that one. I, I really do. I understand. I think it's horrible that we, we tax people to such an extent that there's no way that they could possibly, you know, for some people possibly survive on a single income and therefore take more of a proactive life in their kids' education. And I get that. All I would say is that to the extent that it is even remotely possible, are, are there things that, you know, Tina and I, we were military, right? And we were enlisted military. It's not like we, either one of us came from money. It's not like either one of us were rich. It's not like I got out of the military and became, like none of that happened. Um, we, we just made a decision early on with our kids. And the end result was, is that our spending habits and everything else that we did, it was just kind of a foregone conclusion that it was going to be a single income family. And again, I'm not suggesting that that's can be the reality for everyone, but all I would do is, is, Honestly, ask yourself, what, what can you live without in order to invest in this? And if you can't, like if you really, if you just can't pay the rent, if you don't have two, two income, then all I'm going to say is that it is going to require more of an effort for you with your kids if they're going into a school system that may very well be hostile to, to what you want them to believe. Um, let's look at the cor corporate and banking, uh, Disney and Bud Light. I, this is one thing where I think conservatives have finally realized that they actually do have some genuine power within the marketplace. I, I actually wouldn't say that it's under corporate banking. I'd say it's under the entertainment industry because we've Hollywood has been destroyed by by not just explicit boycotts, but just people walking away from garbage content that they that pushes wokeism and diversity, equity and inclusion and identity politics more than it pushes good storytelling. Yeah, like like Disney genuinely thought if we just race swap all the characters of your favorite, you know, classics from the 90s, we can get away with terrible storytelling as well, because at least we're virtue signaling that we're good people yeah. like no, I, I, I terrible story is a terrible story. And when you also shred a historical piece and you remake it and you simply just swap a bunch of stuff around in order to meet whatever identity criteria you think is is best in order for you to virtue signal people are going to walk away from it not mass boycott planning conservatives boycott i mean people are doing that as well but honestly the normies are just going to walk away because it's garbage yeah it's a, well i i don't i can't remember the last time i've watched anything associated with star wars but i'll tell you what i do watch a lot of nerd rotics analysis of star wars <laughs> that's exactly what i mean because nerd rotics analysis of star wars is actually very entertaining to me and I actually feel like I'm 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 also this is the something. one place where we've already made tremendous progress in tearing yeah. down the cathedral and creating counter institutions because we've made it popular to mock it's incredible that we've made it popular to mock yeah. an element of the Leviathan, yeah. which is the entertainment and media. Yeah. Like, like, like it has gotten to a point where you get on Twitter and like people will just mock journalists. Yeah. And and, and, and people will, will mock Hollywood and the entertainment industry. That is an incredible accomplishment that it shows how far we've gotten to creating these counter institutions and making it unpopular to be associated with elements of the cathedral. That is a sign that we all shouldn't be blackpilled. 
we can actually win. You 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 can actually pull this thing off and tear down tear down the cathedral, which is again, you will never fix the political problems that we have until you fix the reinforcing mechanisms, the Leviathan and the cathedral that have created the political clown world that we live in because the political clown world that we live in is an offspring of yeah. of the Leviathan. Well, and we when we also look at like commercial, when we look at companies in general, there's, there's companies that you can do business with. And again, we will never tell anybody to do business with a company that is just selling you freedom water, right? Like get your freedom dirt here. Like that's not the thing. But when you have companies that are actually doing a good job and doing a good product and maybe they're starting out or maybe they're providing you a higher quality. I, I mean, one of the things uh, I look uh, at is, Good what, ranchers. <laughs> like good ranchers, right? <laughs> but when I when I look at these, I look at it like, okay, what's the price point? What can I afford? What's the value I'm getting? And you know, if it takes me an extra step and I want to develop that habit, or on something like good ranchers, and they just allow you to subscribe, right? Like that becomes a no-brainer. And now there's there's a portion of my shopping that I no longer have to worry about. And so finding companies that do that, but that also do a good job. I'm telling you, if you reward companies just based off a of fly in the flag, they're gonna fail. You gotta reward companies that that actually do a good That's job. That's the only way that you'll pull the normies over. Yeah, they're flying the flag. So I want to answer this question. Jesse, uh, uh, or sorry, Kubbage asks, what are your thoughts on homeschooling? Should parents be required to demonstrate any sort of basic level of knowledge or ability to, in fact, teach? Jesse, here's the question I would ask. Uh, they have to be required by who to demonstrate any sort of basic level of knowledge? What is What exactly does that mean, ultimately, uh, in, in order to teach? I will tell you this much. I don't know a lot of parents that are diving into homeschooling who are illiterate or don't know or don't have any sort of interest whatsoever in actually conveying knowledge or information to their child. Right. So there, there's always this, this kind of like fear that is put out there, this idea that, oh my gosh, if we just allow more homeschooling, you're going to get all these parents that you know, just can't be bothered to send their kids to school and they're just going to let their kids sit around all day. Sure. That could be a problem. You, you have that now within the public school system, but then you also have public schools that are also failing to be able to actually educate children. And so uh, the thing is, is that this is, this is a trade-off. It is not a solution. If you allow for more freedom to homeschool, you are going to have some parents that don't do a good job. You're going to have other parents that do an excellent job. But I look at this with the public school system. Well, now if I send my kids to the public school system, even if they have all of the credentials you could ever want to teach, if they're teaching my kids things that I think are completely counterproductive to their mental and, and, and educational health, well, is that a good thing simply because they had a PhD by their name? I mean, I don't think it is. And so this is the part where, yeah, f freedom comes with a certain degree of personal responsibility and a certain degree of risk. And you don't mitigate that risk by saying, oh, never mind, we'll let the government handle it. No, you just change the risk structure. The risk structure that we have now is, oh, yeah, the government will definitely provide for your child's education. And, and maybe it'll be good. And maybe it will be horrible. And maybe your kid will be sitting in class next to a furry that's using a litter box. <laughs> right? Where's the test to find out whether or not we should be doing something like that. So the thing that I would put it is, I think your question is a, is a, is a good one, but I, I take it back to, okay, who's going to be the one demanding that you display knowledge and what will they consider basic knowledge? Because it might be that the government decides, yeah, you can only homeschool provided that you are using a curriculum that we've determined is properly equitable and inclusive. Well, now all of a sudden you've taken away the whole reason why they were homeschooling in the first place, which they didn't want to teach their kids and, and something they believed was ideologically perverse and wrong, not because 
equality before the law is wrong, but because they don't want their kid to be taught that you can change your pronouns on a daily basis and it's perfectly okay if that's the way you identify. So this is the, this is the problem with trade-offs that we will always engage when we're, we're allowing the government to decide who's qualified to do something that is not first and foremost, a government responsibility. Okay. Let's look at some of the other ones. Um, when we look at, uh, you know, the, the government elections, government is, you can look at the bureaucratic state and you say that's, that's pretty well captured. And I would agree with that. It's pretty well captured, but elections aren't, there's going to be some people in mad and say, yeah, it is. It's all rigged. All I can say is that if it was all rigged, there's no way I'd be in office. Okay. So I do think we still need to compete in this environment for the simple fact that government has power. And with elections, we still have the ability to put people in there that want to reduce the power of government um, or keep the government focused on what its responsibilities were supposed to be rather than all the things it's doing now. So even though I think there's, if you want to uncapture some of the parts of the bureaucracy, you're going to have to elect people that will actually change the laws that will allow you to reduce the size of government. And, and so I still think that's an area that we should compete in. I don't think we're not going to set up a, a totally, you know, alternative to you know, the United States government, right? So no, we, we need to actively involve ourselves and compete in it. However, as, as we look at all of this, um, and we, we have an election year here in Virginia, and obviously we're all working very, very hard to try to make sure that we have a situation where we can elect the sort of people that will carry the legislation and vote the way that we want. In the meantime, though, I think the big thing that we want to avoid telling people is that you're going to solve things by just voting harder. Look at the things for which you are a contributor. Look at the things for which you are a consumer. All right. A consumer, so I go to the grocery store and I buy groceries. I'm not contributing anything to that grocery store except the money that I pay for the groceries. But in other realms, I, I am a contributor. I work in those areas. I have a field of expertise and I can use that expertise to benefit the organizations, institutions, and businesses or, or politicians that are agreeing with me on these, these core components. Or I can utilize them to help people that don't agree with me on these core components. And that affects the way that you will, if you, if you visualize it that way, that will affect the way that you consume information, will affect the way you analyze information, will affect the way that you, you buy goods and services. It will affect the way that you look at delivering goods and services. It will affect the way that you vote. It'll affect the way that you interact with government institutions and agencies. And part of what we need is for people that do want to see greater individual liberty, greater respect for personal responsibility, people that do want to push back about some of the negative incentive structures that we see both within our culture and our politics, is that we need them actually operating intentionally. Part of the reasons why the left got to this degree of absolute capture of these is because they operated intentionally. They looked at this as a, as a moral obligation for them, not just an economic obligation, not just a per, personal obligation. They were actually on mission at a time where we were not because we thought the mission had already been achieved. Well, what you find is that it's, it's never entirely achieved. So what do you do about that? Well, we've done a lot of episodes where we talk about focus first and foremost on what you can actually do. Are you going to replace Hollywood tomorrow? Probably not. If you actually have the capacity to do that, we would love for you to join our chat, right? But you're probably not, but you can adjust the way that you consume information and what you participate in. Um, so look for those things, develop your capabilities, find your people, build those intentional communities, 
you know, locally, regionally. And, and that's the way that you push back against this. Because as, as Christian has pointed out, as we've pointed out several times on this, it, it, is, it is all fine and good to constantly point at the lie and say, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's a lie. Did you see that they're lying? Oh my gosh, they lied again. They're, they're continuing to lie. They keep lying. Okay, what are you supposed to point to as the alternative? What are you supposed to point to as the alternative? People want arts and entertainment. People want to get the news. People want to get education. People want to be able to engage in commerce. People want to engage in banking. They want to do these things. Great. So provide something better. Nick, um, um, as you close this out, explain why all of these things are so important because they're, they're, they're really interconnected. And I, I, I think that one thing that might be still missing is understanding. Okay. So I get that there's all these problems, you know, I, I, I get that there's, there's, you know, political issues. I get that there's cultural issues, the whole, you know, woke stuff, the culture war and everything. I do know that intrinsically it's all kind of somewhat interrelated. And I, I really think that that's where the strength of like the new reactionary thought comes from. You don't need to be a new reactionary or a monarchist in order to, to connect all of these things together. So when you, when you give the, you know, the making the argument segment here at the closing, like, how can you connect some of the, the concepts that we've talked about today? You know, things like the cathedral and the red pill and on the writings of people like Yarvin and Land. How can you connect that stuff to all of the other topics that we've brought up in the past in previous podcasts? And how can we use the knowledge that we've gained from reading some of this stuff to influence how we go about operating in culture, in society and in the political process? Well, I, I mean, I think that's one of the questions we're continually asking. Like, honestly, like I, I can't, I can't just sit here and be like, oh, you just do this. Go yeah. to this. You're supposed to, this, to say, here's the solution. Go to, go, to, go, to, go to this website, you know, buy freedom water. Buy freedom water. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, Tear I, down the cathedral with freedom water. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's easy as just saying like, here's the solution. Do this. I, I do. I do. I think what it comes first and foremost is with a mindset change. One of the reasons why I think the most valuable thing that the neo-reactionary movement did with its terminology was the idea of the red pill. But the red pill tells you half the story. It's like, okay, now you know. Now you know this isn't the way it's being painted in, in the popular media, that there, that there is an agenda here and you're not part of it, right? A lot of time we make this joke before, right? When they say our democracy, they mean theirs, not yours, right? So if, if you understand that, then, then again, how do you focus first on what you can do about it? Because one of the other things I'm absolutely convinced of, and, and I think politicians have a, a natural inclination to gear people toward this thinking is, yeah, the way you're going to solve it is through electing better people. That is a component. It is not the whole of it, right? It is not the whole of it. The other thing too, is that, and this is, this is why I have a real problem with a lot of conservative outlets. It is doom and gloom, doom and gloom. The world's falling. This sucks. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And then vote harder. That's it. I, I, I know a little something about what it is to, to sacrifice. And I think being capable and willing to sacrifice for the things that you love is really, really important. If you don't possess that capability, you're probably doomed ultimately. Or what it really tells me is that maybe you don't love the things that you claim to love as much as you really do. Because everything I've really loved, I've been willing to sacrifice for. But the other thing that I would say is... <laughs> We, we should not look at this as one just big constant slog where this just all sucks and we're in the trenches and this is horrible and we're just waiting for the next gas attack and hoping that enough of us hang on so that when the whistle blows, we can go charge more machine gun nests. Like that's, 
this shouldn't be a World War One scenario for all of us. When when I show up, when I show up to something like the Homesteaders of America convention, which is taking place in October, I am so encouraged. <laughs> Not because everyone there thinks exactly the way I do about monetary policy. I'm encouraged because I see a lot of people there that have an interest in something that is mutual and it allows us to build community within that interest. And it it includes developing internal capacities and capabilities, which are beneficial regardless of what else is going on. Find more of that. Find more of the things that you enjoy doing that is actually beneficial to everything that we're talking about. Like, I'll give you another example. Free plug, right? Because it's not like we can... This shirt, right? I love this shirt. I love the join or die because it, it's, a, it's a revolutionary war uh, message that was put out about talking about the, thir- uh, the 13 colonies and how they had to unite in order to fight. Otherwise, it was the whole Benjamin uh, Franklin quote, right? If we don't hang together, we will surely all hang separately. Well, the, the company that produces these, American Freedom Co., we, we just found it one day because they had a, a Culpepper Minuteman shirt and I represent Culpepper. And I, so I was, oh, we're, we're going to order it and we'll see what, it, I loved it. It was great. It was super comfortable, right? And the people are really, really nice and they do a great job. Um, it, it's the same thing when I, when I meet people like John Lovell and we start talking about Warrior Poets Society and what does it mean to be a good man? Well, when, when you look at the prescriptions for that, it's not all, well, we're just going to hunker down and hope we can do our best because everything sucks. It's like, no, you're going to go to the gym. You're going to work out. By the way, you know what you're also going to do? You're going to read poetry. Why? Because you're going to be romantic, more romantic for your wife. Why are you going to do that? Because it fosters a healthy relationship. Why are you going to do that? Well, because it's good for a variety of spiritual, emotional, and physical reasons. Why are you also going to do that? Well, because it's great for your kids, both the production of them <laughs> as well as the education of them in, an, in a healthy, happy environment. You know, so this is what I'm talking about. Stop looking at all of this as you're just the fighting the Leviathan is nothing more than a horrible trudge through through life in the hopes that maybe at the end you can you can arrive, you know, beaten and bruised and bloody at the finish line. Find the things that you love to do. Find the things that are you're passionate about and then do them in such a way to where it makes you more capable. It makes you more effective in this fight. But at the same time, be happy. Be happy about what you're doing. Like, I I love that I get to do this. I love that I get to talk to the people that we do on our community chat. I love that I get to work with companies that share my worldview. I love that I get to meet other people as I'm doing this that also share that worldview and want to do something about it and are doing something about it. I love that I get to show up at a homesteaders conference and I get to run into Jess and Jeremiah from Roots and Refuge and totally fanboy that, oh my gosh, you're the one that taught me how to do, you know, seed starts. That stuff is fun and it's great. And the more fun you're having doing it, the more people that are miserable, because I will tell you right now, the people on the other side of this conversation, they might look like they're having a great time when they're at a parade doing stuff in the middle of the street in front of children that is highly inappropriate. I guarantee you there's a lot of hurt and pain there. And and this idea that they're going to solve it through what's going on or the idea that they're going to solve it through another government program that is going to ring hollow eventually. And the people that have actually developed the capabilities that have made them resilient, but have also made them happy in this process because they had meaning and purpose throughout it. They're going to be the ones that's going to be the testimony. Ultimately, when somebody says, man, what I was told doesn't work. Why is what you're doing working? Oh, this is the reason. So that would be my answer to that question. Well, look, I think we went a little bit long here, but it was, it was kind of an in-depth topic. It was. 
It was an in-depth topic and we want, hopefully you walk away from this kind of understanding the origin of some of these quotes, some of these terms that are being used, some of the explanations that they're providing. As I said at the beginning of this, I don't agree with all their conclusions. I, I certainly don't agree with all their solutions, but I do think it's important to properly understand what they believe, why they believe it, where they're coming from and what the actual solutions they offer are so that it can be effectively critiqued for what they are, not the caricature of them. Not to mention the fact that it gives us an opportunity to talk about what are our solutions. And I hope we've done a good job actually explaining and articulating that. Once again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to Good Ranchers for their sponsorship, and we will see you next episode.